Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. And welcome to another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, the raccoon with no name to my Marquis de Cat. Mr. Robert Lindgren, how you doing? Hello, hello. Uh, I'm doing good, Jonathan. Doing good. Feeling it. Can I tell everybody about April? Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Because I'm so stoked. My my wife for Valentine's Day bought me a plane ticket to come visit you. Yeah! So we'll be hitting up the uh, greater Portland area in April. I have no idea what we're going to do. Like, I am such a suburban dad. I don't know anything interesting to do. <laughs> it's like, hey, Jonathan, do you want to go eat at the Del Taco? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, Robert, because all the Del Tacos in Texas are gone. Yes, actually, I do. Del Taco takes me back to my happy place. <laughs> nice. Nice. I found a good sushi place yesterday. So there's that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Got a little tentacle. Call it a day. On another note, I also, uh, yeah, we're recording this on my wife's birthday, so everybody say happy birthday, Gina, and, and allow me to apologize again for scheduling this interview on your birthday. I, I'm i dumb, and I, I love you, honey. Happy birthday, well, Gina. Well, before, before we say happy birthday, we should oh, uh, true. get everybody true. to say it and introduce our wonderful guest, Mr. Ray Greenley. Hello, guys. Happy birthday, Gina. <laughs> ah, you didn't read my copy. Is a, I, I, oh, I, I was just about to. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to get those dulcet tones on first before we introduce him as the smooth, sexy sax to our careless whispers. Yes. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to jump in and say happy birthday before I was actually introduced because that would be like, I wasn't sure if that's like crossing the streams, you know, or. No. Is, no. You know, I didn't want to unravel the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you're you're giving us way too much credit for us actually being technical and well put together. I just don't want to take any unnecessary risks because, you know, playing This with- is the wild, wild west. Just shoot from the hip, baby. <laughs> shoot from the hip. I'm really, really happy to be here, guys. Thank you for having me again. This is it's just so much fun to talk to you and to have this opportunity. So, uh, so yeah, this is great. Thanks a lot. And unlike Jonathan, uh, Ray, you have a three-peat because you are now the only person who's been on the show three times. I feel so special. Yes. Unlike Jonathan, because we got some unfinished business before we move on, Jonathan. Uh, we're going to do this now. Did Rise of Skywalker stick the landing? <laughs> do you oh, remember that? that? Yeah. Yeah. So Brendan uh, on our Facebook group has said, no, I have found reviews that straight up say that out loud. But you but know I what? Could, I can find reviews that say yes. But you know what? You know what? Subjective. I, think Subjective I, 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 will let, I will let Ray handle this one ray do you want to be the only three pete in forgot my dice history at this point or do you want to share it with jonathan's three pete well it would be a tie so so did i win or was it a tie i'm really wishing i had re-listened to that segment because i remember listening to it and having a very solid opinion of who is correct (laughs) but that was several months ago and my short-term memory with seven kids is not so great here, give me a, give me a recap of the arguments if you can, quick. I said that the Rise of Skywalker did not stick the landing because it did not resolve any of the plot elements or themes that were brought up in the previous movies. It just kind of did its own thing. 
Jonathan says that it's subjective and up to the individual and therefore cannot be quantified. All right. And so what was the prediction? The prediction was that it would not stick the landing? It, uh, my prediction was uh, Rise of Skywalker would not stick the landing. And Jonathan disagreed. So what do I have to say to be able to be allowed on the show? Well, your, your honest opinion, <laughs> because there's two of us and we both have keys to the door. <laughs> so um, right now I would say that there was one of you that was arguing for more points that I felt like shouldn't have had them. So the one of them that shouldn't have had more points definitely should not have gotten them. And the other one should have gotten the points. I feel like you're talking about Robert. <laughs> no, I feel like you're talking about Jonathan. No. No. Not. I earned every point I got, sir. That's you got you guys are absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the well plate doesn't well stop played. with Ray. <laughs> the one of you that's right is the one that was right. And I think there's no other way to go about it except to acknowledge that fact. And I think if we both think about it, then we are obviously on the same page. What did you think of the movie? Um, I haven't seen it yet because I have seven kids and I don't get out to the movies. Um, I, I feel your pain. This was a rare exception that I did. Yeah, no, I, I would have really liked to, but I haven't even gotten to... The problem isn't just that... All right, switching to, um, to raising kids talk tangent. It's not just that... Like I have my kids I would like to watch Star Wars with, but I can't watch a movie with them that's for older kids while there's little kids running around and there's no time to do that when there aren't little kids running around because there's no time to do like anything. I haven't got to watch force awakens with, we have it. We just got to put it in. But like, when do I do that with him? It's like a two and a half hour movie. We'd have to watch it over like three days and half hour segments when we chased away other kids. I don't know. This is hard. So, uh, dad tangent aside, I think that um, whether it stuck the landing is fairly uh, subjective, and I believe I remember uh, favoring Jonathan in this argument. Yes. So uh, I do think that Robert probably gets uh, some points because the like sort of overall consensus as I saw was that there was no consensus, and a lot of people had different opinions. But I'm thinking in the end going to have to um, give the point edge to Jonathan on this one. Well, Ray to paraphrase the great Bill Murray uh, in Ghostbusters, I'm never going to forget this, Ray. <laughs> as long as long as I don't cross the streams. It's <laughs> just all, that's all I'm shooting for here. <laughs> we need to thank our patrons, though, Jonathan. Would you like to do the honors or... Absolutely. As always, we'd like to start out this episode by saying a big old thank you to our patrons over at Patreon. You guys help us keep the lights on and help keep the shenanigans a uh, shenanigan. And, and Ray, you're, are you still one of our patrons? I have not looked. I am still bit. one of the patrons, so you are yes, very welcome. Thank I'm you. Very happy to support the show. This is one small way to give back for all the uh, hours of entertainment that I get from you guys. And yes. uh, it's, uh, yeah. I like it. I very much uh, am happy to do so. And all of you listeners out there, you should too. Bam! And then uh, to both of you, from the bottom of my heart, happy National Spay Day. No, thank you. This, day <laughs> this was day was created by Doris Day, Animal League, in 1994. I didn't realize it was so recent. Yeah, to bring attention to pet overpopulations. So yes, use your hashtag SpayDayUSA and post on social media. <laughs> 
And now you know why I had to say this, because Spade USA, the hashtag, is the best thing ever. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. That's, <laughs> it's got a little ring to it. A little something-something behind it. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very, very clever. Get the whole rhyming, rhyming thing going on there. Oh, man. Oh, that hurts. That hurts. That just takes me back into a bad place. It was a bad place last year. Never again. Never again. Sorry, all I can think of is bags of frozen peas right now. Uh, for Jonathan Spade Day, 2019. It oh, was not fun. It was not fun. It was not a good time. Over and done with now, huh? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Five is, yeah. I'm good. Solid. Feeling real good about that number. <laughs> Like I feel like I've I've got a couple spares. If if something goes wrong, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, seven seven's a lot. I, I don't know how you do it, man. I mean, like five is a, a, a juggling act. Seven, uh, I think, would be when I I. I may I, I don't know. I may have made I this joke before, but I'm very tired. <laughs> yeah, I I fully understand. I'm very tired. I love them all, though. It's great. Oh yeah, no, it's not about love. It's not about love. But let me tell you, 12? 12, 12 will push you over the edge, man. Yeah, my oldest is uh, coming up on teenager. going to be 13 soon. Yeah, so, so is mine. My oldest will be 13 in August. That's hard to comprehend. Especially when I have a one-year-old to take care of that's still crawling around and getting into all the cabinets and trying to kill herself by climbing up ladders and figuring out how to climb down. One of the, one of the best tumblers on the planet is, why is my kid crying? Yeah. <laughs> because I wouldn't let her drown herself in this pond of frozen water. Yeah, yeah, because um, because I dared to actually get the cereal out that he asked for. I know, you didn't do it right. Yeah. Ah, oh, so much crying. Someone's always crying. <laughs> it's usually me. Someone's, someone's always crying. You know, you know what's really funny about this? I was feeling so tired and out of it uh last couple of days the 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 twins have been a little needy and i i've just been so ragged and then i stop and i think that i've actually had time to like go change a, a brake light on my car which made me feel super handy and i've played some video games and stuff and and i i'm just realizing like i'm sitting over here and i'm juggling like three balls right and i'm like oh man this is so hard this is so hard and i look at the two of you juggling like five chainsaws or something and seven chainsaws <laughs> And I'm, I'm just like, man, I got this easy. I'm, I'm going to stop complaining. This is great. <laughs> I'll give you plenty of props for twins, though. I mean, it was hard enough when we had our two kids that were 19 months apart. And it's like, oh, man, two newborns. Oh, newborns are so hard. I have friends who had twins on their first go, and I, I feel so sorry for them. Because, like, your first kid is rough. Yeah. And I can't even imagine having twins on your first go. That is like... Yeah, man, the first one really is... That's an adjustment and a half. Yeah, that's like new game plus hard mode, man. Like, that is that is no joke. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, and it, it gets easier as you get the get things figured out. So, yeah, but twins... Oh, there's a total law of diminishing returns, without a doubt. Oh, yeah, no, but this latest one, it's just like... All right, we got the routine. Get, get with the program, girl. We know what you're supposed to do. You just got to figure it out. Uh, still a lot of lost sleep. <laughs> still up so many times see i'm having the opposite problem because mine are we're potty training them but if they're in bed because they've been told not to get out of bed and play 
uh, they think that they can't get out of the bed to go to the bathroom, so they just wet the bed. And they <laughs> see, that's these things that you don't realize all the ramifications of. It's like, I've got this problem. Kids get out of bed when I don't want them to because they're supposed to be asleep. I say, don't get out of bed. And they say, okay, we're just going to pee. They go, no, get out of bed. You, that's okay. That's okay. We're not gonna I had the bed. diaper leak on my lap today. She was happily bouncing on my lap, and then I looked down and... Because I felt something a little funny, and my pants looked like they had been the victims of a flood. So wait, it looked like you wet your pants, but it was your daughter? That's like the double yep. whammy. Yeah, pretty much. Thankfully, I wasn't out in public. I was just here in my office, but still, not fun. <laughs> huh. She feels especially warm for some reason. I wonder why. Oh, that's why. <laughs> huh. I'm covered in somebody like, else's hearing. Does she have a fever? Oh, no, she doesn't have a fever. It's just... um. I've, I'm extra warm now because she evacuated on me. So anyway, let's see how much of that stays stays in the show because we, that's a tangent and a half. <laughs> yeah, let's move on to off the shelf. Well, we're supposed to be here for the nerdy stuff. Not Well, I guess dad talk is part of the podcast too. So there you go. Extra dad talk. Extra dad talk. There will be extra more. Don't, don't worry. Concentrated dad talk. Can't stay away from it. Cold brew dad talk that's right is it the nitrous one with the the bubbles <laughs> i like it all right jonathan no more tangents go wisdom of crowds with shotgun all right. shotgun off, wait off the shelf right yes off the shelf yes did I, did I say something else whatever you said wisdom of crowds whatever move <laughs> all right well let's get started with our off the shelf segment this is of course where we talk about all the wonderful stuff that we've had off of our shelves onto our tables and deep, deep, deep into our hearts. And Ray, where would you like to start? As the guest, you're going to help us guide the show today. How about we start with reading? Because that is a subject near and dear to my heart. Yeah, that's like your job. Kind of is. I figure it's a great thing to lead off with. Would you like me to go first? Yeah, absolutely. What have you been reading? So the one I'll open with is the book that I am currently working on a recording. Uh, which is uh, Steps to Deliverance by Mark Barber. Uh, the cool thing about it, I'm uh, recording this uh, in conjunction with uh, Winged Hazar Publishing, uh, the publisher that I've done several books for, including Craig Gallant's uh, Legacy of Shadow and The Great Martian War books, which uh, you guys listened to at least some of them uh, for when I came on the show the first time. Keeping on with their uh, gaming connection, Steps to Deliverance is a book set in uh, Mantic Games' uh, Mantica world of Kings of War. Ooh! Oh, that's cool. It's uh, I'm not, you know, intimately familiar with that uh, that game world um, on its own because I don't do a lot of miniature gaming. But it's still really cool to be able to do a, a work that is based on this existing lore including, you know, being able to talk with uh, someone from Mantic Games for a short while to get pronunciations. Doing my prep for this book, I had a notebook that I kept with me, and every time there was a name that was a made-up fantasy name, then I wrote it down, and the author was able to give me pronunciations for the ones that they did, and uh, then I had to go to Mantic Games for some of theirs so that I could be faithful to that uh, original source material. It's just cool to to be in this world um, that other people have already, you know, done work in, 
to learn about it, right? Because this is my entry to it. And so I'm learning about, you know, the paladins of Basalia and the uh, the demons of the abyss. So you've met my children. <laughs> yes. I've, I'm getting it from this perspective. And then it's just so cool to be able to see, like, the different battle and action sequences and think, like, I mean, yeah, the author probably had, like, a miniature table with these different units in mind as this battle like is being played out in the book and it's like I can sort of see how it would have worked as the miniature game and so he's got like like a, a unit of uh of Vesalian men at arms and uh mercenary crossbowmen and two uh units of Vesalian pa- mounted paladins and it still you know works great as the story but I also get this connection to gaming which is just so much fun one of the challenges for me with this one um, that I wasn't quite aware of when I agreed to do the book, uh, maybe you are aware of this, but Mantic Games is uh, based in the UK, uh, as well as the author for the book. Um, so it's definitely as I was reading it, it's like, huh, that's an odd way to phrase that. And the reason that it is is because it's written by someone from Britain um, who is using that sort of phraseology. And so then I had a real decision to make, right? As the narrator, the author obviously had British dialects in his mind when he was writing these characters, um, but I am not British. And, you know, I can do a decent, uh, you know, British accent, but when, as a narrator, it's a problem for me to try to do, like, the whole book in a different dialect than my own, because you really need to be comfortable in that narrative dialect in order to, you know, give a good performance. And if I'm constantly worrying about using a different dialect, I'm probably not going to be able to give a good performance as far as the narration goes. But on the other hand, you know, the book sort of has that feel. Like if I do it with just English dialects, especially people who are fans of this and know that it's uh, a British property, will be like, oh, geez, why is like all this with American dialects when obviously it should be with British? So I decided to try to bridge the gap. I'm doing the narration in my normal American dialect, but I have all the characters uh, in British dialects. So I did some extra research, some extra work with uh, some of my dialect modules that I have from the one website I use. And then I just have to be able to settle in on the dialect for the character and be able to make sure that I'm uh, hopefully staying, staying pretty good with that dialect for that character. Uh, but in the end... It is a made-up world, so if I'm a little bit off, it's like, eh, you know, they're not actually British. <laughs> By design. By de- as, as designed. Jonathan, do you want to hear something, uh, depending on your point of view, terrible or awesome? I am on Mantic's website, and I'm looking at the various armies in Kings of War, and there is the Trident Realm of Nertissia. I don't know what this is, but they're Gilman. How dare you? Yeah. N- none yeah. of those in the book that I'm reading now. Spoiler. I guess I can't entice you with that. It's a cool, well-written book. Like uh, Mark Barber, the author, did a great job. And I'm lucky to have such great material to read from. Uh, Lots of action and excitement. And I'm working through it. I was hoping to be further along than I am right now, but it's really hard to to put in solid time, unfortunately, especially this time of year. Uh, My wife is an accountant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine. So my recording time puts more pressure on her. Uh, there was a period there where she said, I really need to be able to get some stuff done. So if you can take a break for a week. And so I did. I had to to not record for most of a week. Like on my end, I don't have a solid 
deadline uh, at the moment. We're still sort of working out when I need to have the book done with the, uh, with the publisher. Uh, I want to get it done as soon as I can, but fortunately I'm able to take a step back when my wife needs some more time or the kids need dentist appointment or whatever the heck I need to do in the morning. But I'm hoping to get the book done uh, by the end of this month. And so hopefully it will be released sometime in March and uh, hopefully you guys will be interested in checking it out or at least some of the listeners were and check the face- what's the approximate uh, release uh, date? So I'm hoping for sometime in March so probably more towards March. the end of that and uh, if you go to the uh, forgot my dice pod uh, uh, Facebook group uh, you might be able to s- I might post there when it's released and you might have an opportunity to get a free copy to listen to so you should go and check out the Facebook group and participate in the discussion there dear listener Woo! I like that. I like that a lot. All right. Yeah, I'm I, I'm interested in this. I, I actually have some miniatures for this game. I never played it, but uh, the 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 Basilians. Uh, Basilians. Basilians. Mm-hmm. The Basilians have a lot of angels, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the angels are cool. They got wings of fire. <laughs> you, uh, if you if you listen to slash read the book, you may see some of them. So that that's the uh, the book that I am working on right now. Uh, I have done some other reading slash listening uh, of stuff I'd like to talk about. One is uh, called uh, Gates of Fire by uh, Stephen Pressfield, which is basically a story of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. Ooh, neat. 300 Spartans against the Persian millions. I, mean, I, I had seen the movie 300, which was pretty cool. I saw I saw this book. It was on Audible sale. And I thought, oh, let's take a listen to this. And so that this is is trying to be more historically, a little bit more historically accurate, but it still takes like the perspective of a fictional Spartan uh, squire at that battle and sort of goes through their their life. They're like captured by the Persians and recounting the uh, tale of his life and the battle at Thermopylae to the Persian emperor. So you, you get this snapshot of what life was like back then. Um, spoiler alert, it sucked. <laughs> no. What? Yeah, ancient, no. Ancient, ancient Greece was a... Sh- it was a shirt show? Was it a shirt show? Yeah, it was a shirt show. <laughs> Listen to this on audiobook, just to, if I hadn't made that clear already. And the, uh, the narrator is really good. The story is, it was so compelling. Like hearing about like how this character developed and got into the Spartan training and talks about the Spartan training and then going to Thermopylae. And it uh, turns out, according to this, I'm assuming the history on this is better than, say, 300. It was not just 300 Spartans there. It was... No, there were thespians as well. I think like a thousand or yeah, two thousand? Totally, yeah, there were several thousand, several thousand Greeks there. Uh, 300 Spartans, but that does not include their squires and their other support. But hearing about like a, describing the battle... I mean, it was probably like 20, 25 minutes of audio for like the first time the Spartans went into battle against the Persians. It is brutal. By, by the way, not a book to listen to with your kids. <laughs> <laughs> not, don't do it. Besides all the swearing, it's like, did they use the F word uh, back in ancient Greece? Oh, I'm sure they had an equivalent. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sure positive they, they did. Yeah, I know they had equivalents, but uh, but and then the, the the description of gore and and bloody. The oh, it's the thing is 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 what something I really like in sort of um, military books, where it's not glorifying the combat, right? I mean, it's telling you how brutal and ugly and awful it is. Oh yeah, no, there was nothing good about it. People don't realize how good 
people in combat have it these days compared to back then. And I don't mean that combat should be taken lightly, but there's a far, far cry when you're losing a limb if you get nicked. Not to mention it's all coated in a bunch of stuff that's going to give you a variety of different diseases, all of which you don't have a cure for. It is brutal, but it is so good. Um, like if you're a fan of history and you want to know more about that period and that battle and the events around it, like definitely check this book out. Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. And then my final one here for reading uh, is kind of two, but I'm going to combine them into one. Um, have every any of you guys uh, heard of or read John Dies at the End books by David Wong? No, I'm I'm familiar with David Wong quite a bit because he he uh, does a lot of stuff on the the cracked. Uh, he's like the chief editor of Cracked. So I, I I've heard him on podcasts and stuff, aka Jason Pargin. Right. Yeah. the The books are basically kind of comic horror. This is interesting. I have not actually like read the first one. I started with the second one, um, which is called "This Book Is Full of Spiders." No, seriously, dude, don't touch it. <laughs> And uh, and the reason for that is because I saw the series like, yeah, comedic horror, that'd be kind of fun. So the narrator of the second book is Nick Padell, who is just an amazing narrator. And he nails this book is full of spiders, which is it's a really hard line to walk because of the humor and the horror. Like a lot of the humor is kind of pretty juvenile, kind of gross out. It's funny. I was just talking about Jace, or uh, David Wong today. Uh, so I've been watching a lot of The Simpsons lately, and I've been reading about a lot of the production of it. There's kind of different eras of The of the Simpsons based off of who was producing it at the time, and I've been reading about this guy named Mike Scully, and he apparently had problems with the writing staff uh, of The Simpsons because he didn't go to Harvard. And I think it, I, it's just so weird to think about like comedy, like not all that long ago, if you wanted to be a comedic writer, you had to go to Harvard to get in like the, the you know, the, the National, or what is it, the Harvard Lampoon or something like that. And I was just thinking about this the, the other day because uh, Cracked is one of the f- websites that kind of broke that mold because David Wong is not not a guy who went to Harvard. He's, uh, I think he's from Texas or something, and he's pretty, uh, he's from a very working class area. And just what you're saying about his humor style too, you know, that that's like a lot of the complaints that they had about, the writing staff had about Mike Scully was that it was, you know, kind of juvenile and, and all of that and... It's just it's just weird how how TV and like the the face of all that's changed. Where you know now a guy like David Wong can you know write several books that get adapted into movies and and all that. And if 10, 15 years ago that just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't realize any of that. Like normally that's not the type of humor that I'm attracted to. Just like stupid humor, right? I'm not a big fan. I like <laughs> I like like ridiculous humor, like Mel Brooks style humor. But I don't like like the kind of Dumb and Dumber style humor. There's an art to it, and and what I really like is people really dumb humor, obviously written by really smart people. Because like to get something, you know, to get something that wrong, they need to know it. And and David Wong, when he writes articles, he, he at least hits that. I'm not sure how the books are because I haven't read them. He does a good job with these books, and I like I really enjoyed them, especially Nick Podell's performance in this book is full of spiders. Uh, the third book that I listened to, um, they went back to the the first narrator, uh, Stephen Thorne. Uh, the book is called What the Hell Did I Just Read? A Novel of Cosmic Horror. <laughs> I like yeah, the name. The, the names are good. It's uh, It was good, but like, oh man, like the Stephen Thorne seems like a fine narrator, but just did not hit the timing of the like irreverent asides and all that stuff that's in this these books that has to be done so perfectly, right, to get it to really hit. And Nick Botel nailed it. Stephen Thorne, 
did fine. So I'm not going to say don't listen to it for Stephen Thorne, but definitely listen to this book of full of spiders or just, you know, read them if that's how you do things. If nothing else, the name of the book, this book is full of spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. That's the name of the book. <laughs> the guy definitely has a gift for yep. naming. And the, the if you look at the cover of the book, there's like, it's like the book is torn open in the middle and these little paper spiders crawling all over it. Uh, it's so good. All right. Who else? Who else is reading? I have not been reading much. I've kind of gone through a few of the things I've talked about before, like Ars Magica Arberia, and I got The Ornament of the World, but I haven't had time to sit down and read it yet. I have been reading through more of uh, the Medieval Lives book, which is, if you like medieval British history, I would highly recommend it. It's it's good times. There you go. That's all I've been doing. Jonathan? I have been recently reading The Expanse again. Um, it's been a long time since I had a chance to read it. Uh, well, not The Expanse, specifically Leviathan Wakes. I started at the beginning. So I think I'm going to redo that series. Because I've been having a good time. I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed that writing. You promised me you'd do Surrey, Surrey, Cersei, Cersei. There you go. I, I did. I did. I had this in my queue and I didn't even realize it. So Cersei's in the queue. <laughs> and after hearing you talk about Leviathan Wakes last time, I was like, I want to go listen to that again. Uh, and then I was having troubles <laughs> downloading it, up, uploading it onto my MP3 player. <laughs> Stupid Audible app or program that they don't use anymore because I don't just stream it. It's gotten a lot better. What I did do is, is it also motivated me to pick up book four because I had stopped after book three um, and never kept going. So I finally picked up book four, uh, Cibola Burn, I think it's called. And so I've got that loaded onto the player and I just finished listening to Red Shirts. Um, have you heard uh, read that one by John Scalzi? No, not yet. I, I have heard nothing but good stuff about it. All right, this is a bonus, bonus reading. I just list, finished listening to this today, and uh, Will Wheaton does the narration for it. And I really enjoyed Will Wheaton when he narrated uh, Ready Player One, but I didn't really like his performance in Red Shirts. So this is one that I kind of recommend you just read rather than listen to the audiobook. The thing is, is in Ready Player One, I remember like he does voices for the different characters. And so this is a style thing for narration. You have certain narrators who will try to give all the main characters uh, distinct voices so that, you know, you can sort of hear what that character sounds like by the way the narrator is reading the character. Like, is it a, you know, a high-pitched nasal? Is it like low chest voice? Well, there's another style, which is like the narrator doesn't do character voices and just tries to distinguish the characters within the scene. So like a character doesn't necessarily have a specific voice. They'll just be, this will be the lower male voice in the scene. And this will be the, you know, higher male voice in the scene for red shirts. Will Wheaton didn't do either. He just did everybody exactly the same, which made it really hard to tell who's talking in some points. I'm not sure if this, the book was written this way, but there's a lot of, attributions that you don't normally always see in books these days. Blah, blah, blah. Doll said, blah, blah, blah. This person said, blah, blah, blah. This person said, this person said. And you get these rapid fire conversations broken up constantly by said this person, said that person, said this person, said that person. It's like, oh my gosh. And if he had done anything to distinguish the voices, he wouldn't have needed those attributions because you would have heard it. But because he didn't do any distinction, everybody sounded the same. Everyone had to be attributed with their dialogue. And even then it was hard sometimes to tell who was who. And I was like certain characters that I just like, I, I couldn't connect with at all just because I couldn't figure out who they were when they were speaking. So I still enjoyed the book, right? It was still, he did still did an okay job, especially, you know, when it was time to emote, like when he was angry, which was kind of like an angry lot for the characters because they're red shirts and they're not wanting to die. 
you know, he did all that great, but it was just so hard to listen to and to actually keep track of who is who. Kind of got to recommend if you're going to read the book, and I do recommend you read it, especially if you're a Star Trek fan, you should read this book. Stay away from the audiobook unless, you know, you really prefer it like I do. But it's just not as well done, unfortunately, on the narration side as I would like. So there we go. Bonus reading for me. I took somebody else's spot. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I have, a, I have a question for you about recording audiobooks. So because of Dune Watch 2020, I was turned on to the Dune audiobook, which I recently read the Turning the Page book, you know, the turn of the century book. When I went and listened to it, it was weird because there were some sections that actually had multiple voice actors almost like a radio drama and then there were other sections that were um just narrated like you were just describing and i was just wondering you know if is there like an industry standard to that sort of thing or what what they did with that they basically had certain scenes that were full cast because they didn't want to try to do the whole book full cast for whatever reason Full cast stuff, it's super expensive, right? I mean, the editing is, is crazy, The getting everything sounding good. So they just decided to enhance certain chapters. I know, I've, I mean, I listened to the same book. So, I mean, I learned a little bit about it in the process. It was really confusing in the end because like, sometimes one character would have one voice and other times they would have another. It, was, it ultimately kind of turned me off to the whole experience. Yeah, it's, it's, I kind of, it confused me at first because I didn't really realize what was going on. I saw when I got the book, I was like, oh, this is a full cast, including, hey, the Scott Brick I just mentioned is in that book. And a bunch of other amazing uh, narrators, including the one who does the, the main uh, narration, uh, Simon Vance, is another amazing narrator. No, no, the, the main narrator is great. And I just wish they had stuck right. to one. Uh, or did everything or just not do the hybrid. Yeah, I kind of agree um, that I'm not a huge fan of that choice because it, it does get confusing. It's neat to have those scenes with the characters, you know, that are like have the different voices. And it's a little you can I can, could tell it was a little more dramatic and a little more like it's sucked in just a little bit more. But then it you lose that when you're switching over. And now, like you said, the voices are different because... You know, Simon Vance is Simon Vance. You know, he is not all these other people. So he can't, like, duplicate the characterizations they were doing. So, yeah, that's that's not normal. But then full cast ones aren't... You just don't see a lot of it because it's just super expensive and super hard to do. So it's sort of like what I ended up feeling like, okay, I'll get these these chapters where you have all these other characters. It's just like a little treat. You know, it's like it's a little extra that uh, I'm going to try to try to appreciate the the larger production for these few chapters but really my main energy and focus is going to be on the simon vance only chapters because that's where most of the story is well there you go i've been waiting to ask that question for what six weeks robert (laughs) yes i'm glad to help um all right well that's books where do you want us to go next ray you have your choice of board games miniatures uh movies and tv uh, video games and well, how other. about just so I can hear myself talk a little more? It's funny. I go onto these things like, oh man, I hope I have enough to say, and then I, I just, I never shut up. So I'm, <laughs> let's just hop over to miniatures real quick because I just want to talk about how I'm still painting uh, miniatures. I think I probably talked about having started it or just getting started last year. Since then, I've painted uh, my miniatures for my Fury of Dracula game, which um, I really enjoy. They're tiny. It was really hard, so 
very challenging considering my first like real painting project outside of the practice I did. Then uh, I've also painted um, my figures from the Clank Acquisition Incorporated expansion and really nice miniatures that came with those. And I got those all painted up. So now when I play Clank, I can use those figures instead of like the little minis and they look really cool. Nice. And then I finally dove into painting uh, what I'm working on now, which is uh, the figures for My Little Scythe, which my dad got for the kids for Christmas last year. It's a, a great game for for the kids. I can play with even like my four or five-year-old. Like I have to help him with the rules and like sort of maybe like push him like say, hey, these are kind of your choices, but he can like play that game and we can sort of play co-op together um, or he can play competitively and like such a fantastic game for families and it comes with all these like nice chunky miniatures and i finally got started on painting them i've done two sets like there's uh, the figures each um faction has two figures and so i've painted two of them now and we just played yesterday and the kids all wanted to use the painted miniatures and i've been working on even today the third set and um i'm really enjoying this uh miniature painting thing and i can't wait to get these all done so that when the, we could play the game, we can all have the painted miniatures and it looks so much nicer on the table. You guys paint anything recently, Robert? No? No. <laughs> no, no I know. It's hard. I, I get like a, an hour or two every week. And they, even then I'm like, I should be starting dinner now, but I'm going to try one more coat to get coverage on this, <laughs> this like, guy's robe. It's so hard to find time. So it takes me a long time. It's like been about one a month or something. But I'm getting there. And, uh, and I think they're, they're looking pretty good. I posted some pictures in the one thread on the uh, Facebook group. So if anyone's listening and wants to check out and see what I've done, you can look at it there. I'm pretty happy with how they're coming out. And the, the nice thing is the kids, the kids are all enthusiastic. They're like, Oh, it looks so great, daddy. And like, yeah. And you get a great excuse to play one of my top five favorite games of all time. That's right. Yeah. It's been a while, but even uh, yeah, I got to get that one out again. The man, those ones are so small. It was hard. You did a really good job. I'm looking at your uh, your your paint jobs here right? on the Milo Scythe. I don't know the scale of them. I actually saw this game at my local game store. They're pretty they're, big. They're selling it for like thirty bucks, which I don't know what the MSRP is, but that I think that's half off. I think the MSRP was yeah, forty. It was, it was oh, okay. more than that. Um, I think from what I understand, they printed a lot and it didn't sell quite as well as they wanted. So there's probably um, a lot of copies out there that are looking to move. It's a gr- It's just so good to play with the kids. It's a really nice game. It goes quick. There's still interesting things going on. It's it's not like a mindless kids game, but little kids can get it right. The miniatures are about um, inch and a half to two inches tall, maybe. You're still doing a really good job because they have a lot of uh, smooth details because they're kind of chibi, yeah. like animated it's, figure it's style, very cartoony style, which is what made me nervous about them to begin with. Because it's like, oh man, it's like how do I translate the techniques that I've learned over to that? And so I'm sort of doing some experimentation with them, like the bears. I kind of just did solid colors i did some i used some um some nolan oil to to get some definition in there but i didn't overdo it too much because i didn't want to take too many chances then with the tigers i said you know what i'm just going to try like slathering on some of the the wash to see what it does um and it darkened things up a little bit but i think it still looks pretty cool and i'm going to these uh ones i'm working on now are the eagles i'm going to try to do a little more um lining like um outlining with them to sort of separate some of the colors a little bit. So I'm going to do some experimentation. I've got like eight or so, eight or nine like sets in the box. I could be wrong. Maybe it's seven. I don't know. There's a bunch of different factions. So I've got a lot to go through and a lot of things, a lot of learning and experimentation. 
Like the difference between that first figure, that skeleton you posted, and these is tremendous. It's real. You've improved a lot. Thanks. Yeah, it's a. It just takes me so long. I just don't have time to paint. <laughs> it's just not enough time. We're, we're all there, bud. We're all there. Yeah, yeah. I I painted a lot back when I owned a store and. My wife worked nights and, you know, I had a little baby. And so, you know, she would go to bed pretty early and then I would have like two or three hours before, you know, Gina would come home. So I would just paint while I was waiting for her to come home. And I got a ton of painting done. But then, yeah, you know, no, life. Now <laughs> things are very different. So, uh, so right. Um, that will be miniatures. Why don't we let you guys talk a little bit and let's hop over to video games. Oh, geez, Robert, you want to get started on that? Yes, I have not been playing much. Uh, <laughs> I have not much to say. Uh, I rented the the Outer Worlds, and I played it just enough to realize that if I kept playing it, I was going to be, A, not finishing it before I had to send it back to the library, and B, very pissed about that and sucked in and, you know, taking money out of my game budget that I didn't have to get it. So I, I just stopped. <laughs> it's very good, though. It's very, very, very good. It's super fun, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was like I said. I played about like two hours of it. And I'm like, I I can't do anymore because it it's it's gonna break me, and I've got stuff in my gaming budget I need to need to pay for. Yeah, so. My my Steam list is full of games that are too much fun for me to play. <laughs> Literally, I said like, no, I'm these are taking too much time. I'm staying up too late <laughs> playing these games because I can't stop. And I, the only way for me to proceed forward is to not play this game that I love. So that's the only winning move is not the only to play. winning move is not to play. So, wow, Jonathan, go. Okay, well, uh, fun fact, I started a new job recently, and part of that job, um, I got a PlayStation Pro uh, when I started, and so I realized I had fallen way behind on PlayStation games, and then, coincidentally, Target had a buy one, uh, buy two, get one free on all games, and they had to ha they happened to have a bunch of the PlayStation's greatest hits in stock, so I got six games for I think it was uh, eighty bucks. Not bad. Yeah. Well, especially considering the quality of the games on this list. Number one, Spider Man. My God, it's so brilliant. It's so so friggin' brilliant. Yes. It makes me so happy on so many levels. I am the freaking Spider Man. You feel so pro in the way you can manipulate things too. Horizon Zero Dawn is remarkable what a beautiful achievement of a game and what a great uh, world they created i would love to see a role-playing game in that uh, world and i understand that there's now a board game in that world so now i'm kind of curious about that too days gone uh is interesting sam whitwer is in it uh and he plays a biker which is kind of funny there you go that's the zombie one yeah it, it's kind of zombie but not really it's a survival game though right like you're you're crafting and yeah, it's definitely uh, a survival game. Uh, what else? Uh, Neo, which is from, um, what are they called? Team Ninja? Yeah, Team Ninja from uh, Tecmo. Neo is just kind of like a, a Souls-style game with really interesting combat and a really deep RPG uh, system in it. So I'm really having a good time with that. Uh, God of War, the new one, which is beautiful. And the whole thing is in one long take, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, they they hide the loading screens and like cutscenes and whatnot, and it's remarkable. They have achieved something spectacular. Also, while I enjoyed the voice performance of the original God of War actor, I do have to say, uh, giving it to Christopher Judge, he's got a little bit of extra nuance in there, and it's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Til he played Tilk in Stargate. If I'm not yes. mistaken, right? Yes, yes, yeah. very true. 
Metal Gear Solid Five. I haven't had a chance to drop in uh, for more than just to to see the opening mission. And then, um, oddly enough, my buddy convinced me to get back into Titanfall Two, and we've been having a great time with the online. That, that was that. the free game not all that long ago. I didn't play it at all. <laughs> I should have, I guess. Let me tell you, uh, you are missing out. It is so much fun. Uh, it takes place in the same universe as Apex Legends. It's just the, the the level of freedom you have when you're running around as your character, uh, between the wall running and the grappling, is just remarkable. What what a what a fun liquid fast game that is. I still play Overwatch, even though I kind of like hate play it. It's just if I want an action game that's quick, uh, that's kind of my go-to. It's super fast. It's super fast. Okay, I'll give it a go. Because if a round's like 15 minutes, I can usually fit in like a round or two before between tasks. Yes, rounds are, are less than 15 minutes, without a doubt. Okay, good to know. Moving on, spin the wheel. <laughs> All right, uh, your turn, Robert. Robert RPGs. RPGs. Uh, we played the sixth episode of um, Maravosia, and I can't talk about it because Jonathan is playing uh, a rival faction. Brothers. Yes, yes. But uh, Jonathan's uh, Jonathan's character uh, got a invite because they have completed the castle, and they're inviting all the nobles to come have a nobles feast at the castle. So, yes, and we're we're talking about having you guest star next next time, right? The Cocinaro brothers would be there, and everything is. Coated in rich Corinthian leather. <laughs> so I don't know how I'm going to do that, or why, or what. I'm I'm just going to set all you guys loose on each other and, and drop some plot threads. I've been I've been telling my players this is kind of like the the end of the first act, and then we'll be moving into basically the the middle of it where the the plot really starts rolling. But yeah, yeah, this is uh, it's been interesting. It's been a good game, and I wish I could talk more about it because fun stuff has happened. Besides my wife. Uh, she needs money, so she's uh, you know marrying herself off, and people are finding patrons because they're trying to to build their their noble stuff, <laughs> calling in favors and whatnot. It sounds like a lot of fun. I've got uh, RPG envy. Listening to you guys talk yeah, about if, it. If I you wanna, uh, I want play. me to send you walls and walls and walls of text, I can. I I I've got walls of text. I yeah, the setting is is surprisingly deep at this point. That would be interesting. I I, ha, I make no promises about how much I'll actually read. Can, can, can you send me the audiobook version? <laughs> Maybe. I, I I have something written down that I've been like toying with po- posting on the site, but I, I I haven't really pulled the trigger one way or the other on it. I I just wrote it down as kind of a story of the game or yeah, something. No, it's, but I'm getting more and more behind. It sounds really cool. Uh, it sounds uh, sounds like a really neat idea for a game, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about how it goes. So. So keep playing it. Don't give it up. <laughs> I will try not to. So, okay. So now we've got movies and TV and board games, right? Yeah, let's do uh, movies and TV. I'll go first. I continued my Terry Jones retrospective. I finished through Crusades, which God bless that man for trying to, you know, liven up that occasionally by like chasing around a goose or being a little bit silly. But man, wow. The Crusades were dark. <laughs> yeah. There's no... <laughs> There's really genuinely no way to pretty that time period up. That was a rough no. time, man. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people died. Yeah, yeah. No, no bueno. Oh, it was it was rough. Uh, the other one he did, he did a series called Barbarians uh, along the same style. And that one was 
where he basically asked the question, where do we get our definition of barbarians? Like who are the barbarians? And basically barbarians and barbarian tribes and what we think of barbarians are anybody who was not Rome. Rome thought everybody who wasn't them were the barbarians. And so it asked the question, you know, were barbarians maniacs running around with axes and tribes and, you know, the Conan thing that we kind of have in our head, or was that all Roman propaganda? And it kind of, tries to go for no that was all roman propaganda the the barbarian tribes as we know them have got basically a lot of bad propaganda on their on their shoulders and they were a lot more functional and s- civilized i guess than we you know give them credit for in the modern day because rome won and so they got to write the history on them and also a, a lot of the the tribes they didn't really like writing stuff down they liked passing things on orally so because you know Rome wrote stuff down we got the books and we don't have anything of the other people so that's why we kind of view the Gauls and the Goths and all that in a in a way that's probably possibly not true so it was an interesting series there's four episodes of it and it, it, they focus on different thing on different tribes that the Romans ultimately just conquer because <laughs> that's what Rome do. Oh, and then and then we watched. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why I thought my daughter would like it because she didn't. But I hadn't seen Heath Ledger in The Knight's Tale in forever, and I I got a burn in my saddle to go watch that again. And I I still like that movie. It's it's stupid fun. You have been weighed. You have been measured, and you have been found wanting. <laughs> <laughs> it's way weird looking back on that movie now, because I realized when it came out, it was pre Lord of the Rings, and it was like pre Nerds winning. You know. Like watching that movie, I'd forgotten how much of like nerd culture kind of hung on that movie because that was like right before the nerds won. That was like the big nerd movie right before the nerds won, you know? And uh, yeah, like going back and watching that and just realizing like there was it, it hit because like D, like Dungeon and Dragon magazine did like jousting stuff. Like jousting got into D and D pretty hard during that period, and it was just all that movie, which is bizarre to think about. I remember now. when it came out, then hearing them the producers talking about how they wanted to convey what the excitement of like the joust meant what it, how the excitement of that meant to the people of the time to people now and they had like um the we will rock you like music in there to try to communicate yeah. to like the the 90s audience like hey you're supposed to be excited about this and this is how the people <laughs> felt because yeah like you said like before before the nerds won and now that would be kind of cool on its own with its own dramatic music without having to tap into like modern sports arena. Yeah. It's funny too. Cause I was reading a lot of reviews at the time and a lot of the reviewers were really harping on the anachronisms and how it was really weird and jarring. And I'm, I'm like, if that movie just came out now, I don't think people would talk about that. It, it wouldn't register. Cause we've got so much more stuff like that. That's in, in the popular culture that mixing that wouldn't be weird. It'd be like, Oh, that's an, that's a neat idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I mentioned uh, I've been watching The Simpsons still, uh, Mike Scully and all that, uh, the not Harvard writer. How dare he? Season's a little lowbrow, but or those seasons are a little ro- lowbrow, but it's it's good times. Some of my favorite episodes. And I'm moving more and more into the territory of stuff I didn't watch, which has been much more interesting to kind of see how the things are shifting. And then uh, I just got to give a shout out. There is a YouTube channel that I, I love it more than I should. Uh, it's called The Hour of the Raven, and it's a guy who just does Ravenloft D&D lore videos. But the best part is he's Portuguese, and he just kind of sounds like Guillermo del Toro. And, you know, he's just talking about Ravenloft stuff, and he's just hitting all my buttons, man. <laughs> he's got, like, a groovy accent, and, like, all of his graphics look like 1970s, like, you know, like, grindhouse horror-like stuff. 
and I, I just love that man. I, I just have to give a shout out to him, and he's he's got a great accent. It's it's awesome, and I love that nerd nerddom knows no bounds because there's a guy down in Brazil who is just as much of a dork about Ravenloft as I am, and I love him for it. So I just had to give him a shout out. <laughs> if you ever want to have a really good time, watch a Guillermo del Toro commentary track on any of his movies. They are amazing. Not only does the guy know everything about movies, but he's just such a pleasure to listen to because he sounds like he is having so much fun. Mm-hmm. That And I, it's it's always fun because he's constantly talking about the way he puts fetuses in jars. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's like and there's the jar in the fetus because it would not be one of my movies if it was not there <laughs> wow john wow you uh, the mood in the podcast went up by like several octaves just just with that thank you sir thank you're you welcome that. you're welcome yeah. thank you guillermo the toro for being you <laughs> <laughs> so all right i'll hop in i've been uh watching some uh the witcher yeah i hadn't actually ever played any of the games or read any other books or anything so this is my kind of first introduction to it it's pretty cool uh, <laughs> i'm definitely enjoying it but i said that first episode though i was like oh, oh man uh, well okay this is interesting i'm not sure what's going on and then um i watched it with my wife and she after that one says like okay you can keep watching that if you want uh i'm done but I did. I've, I'm, I haven't watched all of them yet. I'm about halfway through the season, I think. And uh, and definitely sort of getting a better idea of how things are going. Love that uh, Toss a Quindier Witcher song, just like everybody. That was so such a great end to that episode. And he made up that song. And, and then I went and looked it up and, and listened to it several more times. <laughs> My only issue with that whole series is just the way the timeline is presented. They just needed to give a few more cues on what was going right. on. Right. And that's where I got to the point where it really came in like, oh, wait. The stuff that's happening with Geralt is way before the stuff that's happening yeah. with this other girl. Yeah. Like way And once before. you realize that it all makes perfect now, sense. Now, yeah, now things are lining up. I still don't know in this case like where uh Yennefer is in in anything cuz she hasn't linked up with with anybody yet. So that could be like ancient history for all I know at this point. Now it's all up in the air because yeah, they haven't given any indication of when things are supposed to be happening because it's very much not concurrent with the different storylines we're following. Uh, so I'm definitely looking forward to uh, watching more of it. The, uh, one other thing is I wish they didn't feel like they're trying to play so hard for the Game of Thrones feel with these sort of uh, gratuitous nudity and... Um, to be fair, in the books and in the video game adaptations, that's just kind of par for the yeah. course. <laughs> it, it's always been part of the character in the world. So it's it's not something that they just added to the TV show. Not, not something okay. Well, so that's fine then. I guess it it after having coming having come after Game of Thrones, it feels like they're trying to catch that same sort of star, you know. Oh no, Witcher had this by about 15 years. Yeah, so all right, that's fair then. When and, you um, when you get done with it, Ray, uh go read The Last Wish, which is uh the books started as a series of stories and then they collected them into two volumes, which I've never even read the second volume because it didn't exist when I was reading The Witcher the first time. Well, it probably existed, but it hadn't been translated yet. Yeah, it hadn't been translated. But The Last Wish is just a series of stories about Geralt. And then there's kind of like a framing story that's sort of woven into all of them about him recovering after something and Yennefer and blah. Um, but yeah, the stories are interesting. And I like them a lot more than I like the later stuff because he took basically like classic Grimm's fairy tales 
and mm-hmm. inserted The Witcher and a lot of sex <laughs> and nudity <laughs> and a lot of and sex. violence and uh, all of this. Yeah. And uh, th- but they're they're oddly good because, you know, like Grimm's fairy tales are really dark. And then when you have this like, you know, crazy mutant hunter like enter into the mix. Like it, they they were oddly compelling, and my favorite one is uh, I don't remember what the story's called, but they do a riff of Beauty and the Beast, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I was definitely getting tempted to to start looking for the um for the books because I'd heard that they were pretty good, and you know the character is, is starting to grow on me. Like now that like like, like that first episode or two, there wasn't a whole lot of character to see, but it's, it's definitely starting to expand, um, and I'm looking forward to finishing the series, and we'll see where it goes from there. How about that first fight scene, by the way? goodness which uh, the uh the one in the town or the one where he's fighting the yeah. monster oh yeah no the the butcher of uh yeah whatever that town, that town was yeah it was pretty wild fun Fodder. fact henry cable did a uh breaking down of that scene in, on netflix or on uh youtube basically just how they shot it and you know where where the fake sword starts and uh where the real sword ends that kind of stuff and just fascinating breakdown, and you could tell he's just having a great time with that character. Oh, I'll bet. He just seems like he's in nerd heaven. Yeah, well, I saw also a video of him, like, reading from the book. <laughs> and they, oh, yeah. So he's, yeah, definitely looks like he's having a lot of fun, and uh, so it seems to do the character well. But, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the best thing I've seen on the internet recently was a compilation of him just going, hmm, fuck <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I gotta bleep you now, Jonathan. I had to have my one of the episode. Yeah. So the the other show um, that I've been watching, I've been watching this one uh, with my wife, is uh, Dragon Prince on Netflix. Have you guys seen that one? I've Ooh, seen no, it. but I like the name. I, I've seen it's, it pop up, but I haven't watched it. Oh uh, yeah, it's um sort of an anime. It's done by some famous uh, studio or uh, something or other that I don't know really because I'm not that big into anime. But um, the people who are making it are, I guess, fairly well known. But it's a very fun, interesting anime style show um, of a fantasy world where, um, like, the magic uh, elves and creatures, and then there's the humans, and uh, they were fighting with each other. And then the humans went uh, the these dragons that were, I guess, sort of rulers, kind of, of the uh, fantasy sort of side of the continent you know, magical side of the continent and, uh, the humans went in and I think killed the, uh, the one dragon King to try to keep them from being able to come after them and then stole the dragon egg by the story is they destroyed the egg. And then now the whole magic realm really hates them and they're still fighting with each other. Uh, but it's not like too terribly active war. We find out later on that the egg was not destroyed. And then this comes the quest of the, uh, the King's, kids the princes trying to get the egg back so that they can make peace with the uh the other realm the only ding i have against it is like for all like the fame of the animators there's a few scenes like few like shots every now and then where like the frame rate goes down to like like half a second (laughs) or like a third of a second and it's like this uh two second shot that there's like six frames <laughs> and it's like, oh, whoa, that's kind of jarring. But then they also, at other times, they meld in like the digital anima- animation for like um, like some action scenes or like where there's more sweeping stuff. So that's pretty cool. It's a really cool show um, with uh, some interesting characters and the story is, is really good. We're about halfway through the second season or so. I think there's three seasons up on Netflix right now. 
the episodes are only a half hour piece or even like 22 minutes. I think they're actual like, like uh, broadcast TV length, even though there's no commercials. So you can really crank through them if you have the time. Like we can watch two in a night when we're folding laundry. Yeah, a great little show that uh, is this really neat um, world they created. Nice fantasy story with magic and dragons and elves with Scottish accents that I really like. <laughs> oh, the elves are Scottish? Yeah, the one the one elf character is a Scottish accent. No, oh, that's usually a dwarf. Yeah, I know, right? I like it. No, it's good. Yeah, in my D&D game, we intentionally went against type and we made the dwarves French. <laughs> I like that. Right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look this up now. It was something that I shared to the one from somebody else as a meme type thing that I shared to the um, one narration group. Oh, uh, I, I think did of. I did I post that to you? I might have shared it off of you, but it was uh, really funny. About uh, we're gonna change up the uh, standard uh, fantasy trope accents. Yeah, yeah, I shared that with I shared that. You got yeah, that you from shared me? that, and then I shared the group, and it got a lot of uh, got a lot of um, positive response from uh, from the narrator group that I shared it with. A lot of people saying, "Yeah, let's do it." I, like I, I got it up in front of me. You want me to read it? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so it's a, a Twitter thread, and it says, "Hello, everyone. We're reassigning the fantasy accents. Please adjust accordingly." Elves are no longer wispy British. They're 1920s radio announcer. Relics of a bygone age. Weirdly disconnected from emotion. Now there's targets on the horizon. Looks like we're going to have to use our bows. <laughs> Arwen, you can't, you can't stay with him. You're going to die of grief. It's going to be awful. <laughs> I don't know. I got. I, I don't know my Elrond lines. Hark, who goes there? <laughs> <laughs> Dwarves are from Boston now. Please leave the poor Scots be. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't deserve this. <laughs> Oh man, that uh, that mine there is uh, wicked deep, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, man, I just killed forty three orcs. It's crazy. Oh yeah, that's wicked good. Yeah, man. Down, oh, by down by the harbor. Down by the harbor. The harbor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> On a related note, halflings are specifically bad Irish. Sorry, Ireland. Oh, if you have a good Irish accent, please tone it down. You're doing it wrong. Orcs are Texan. Everything is bigger. They have tusks. The overlaps abound. <laughs> Orcs from for the horde partner <laughs> the question is are they from are they from west texas or are they from east texas oh god oh god daggum all the human coming over the the rise and the, the elves the bow <laughs> got a daggum gotta get my axe out i'm gonna go bury it in some skulls and uh, gum. <laughs> now we're gonna go now here we're gonna go and we're gonna go kill some elves so let's go right now all right oh <laughs> uh, which texas we have to know it's important well could sound like my kid's grandpa and just talk like this all the time wow you've got a grandpa that talks like hank hill it's it's terrifying <laughs> i make the joke all the time to jessica it's her grandfather and she just like <laughs> And every time he sees the baby, he talks about how they just listen to the sound of his voice. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll just go to the house and just look at Jessica and say, listen to the sound of my voice. And then I've lost her for at least 15 minutes. <laughs> now hand me that axe. Let's go kill some more. All right. So there we go. New fantasy accents. I like it. I like it. All right, that's my movie and TVs. I think we still need Jonathan's. Uh, mine are easy. Um, because I'm reading The Expanse, I started watching The Expanse, uh, and I'm doing a comparison of how accurate the show is. And uh, 
with the exception of the deeper dive into the UNN, yeah, UNN, uh, earlier in the show, uh, it's surprisingly accurate. I really have enjoyed how they stuck to the source material, at least in uh, season one. Uh, my wife uh, and I are slowly chipping away at The Good Place, which is hysterical, and it's one of the rare shows that actually makes me laugh out loud, which I really appreciate, because it's comedy without a laugh. Are, are, you, do- are you done with season one? Uh, yes, we're in about halfway through season oh. two. Ray, have you watched the the Good Place? Not yet, but I'm hearing so many good things about the Good Place. That okay, maybe we'll have to give it a try. It's hysterical. Yeah, we we, hysterical. we won't have to talk about it. We can't talk about it because it's a big spoiler. Yeah, we 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 will not we will not spoil it. Suffice it to say, it gets my stamp of approval for for a comedy did, show. Did on you TV. see it coming? Was it spoiled for you or or? Uh, no, I I figured as much. It didn't surprise me when it hit, but it was still a lovely gesture. Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> Holy forking shirt balls, my friend. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> picked up ford versus ferrari on uh, the blu-ray because i'm a big automotive guy and it's all about my most favorite car of all time the ford gt40 so uh i loved every second of it and my wife could not believe the audaciousness of carol shelby which was so much fun to watch uh, everybody knocks that out of the park in that movie nice she asked me if it was like a caricature of the real Carol Shelby, and I'm like, no. If you read any any accounts of his life, uh, he really was that audacious and that that just firing from the hip constantly. All right, and does that lead us, leave us to board games then? All right, I think board games. All right, and Finn, gentlemen, go on. <laughs> Fire away, Ray. All right. So I'm going to start with uh, one that my son got for his birthday. Uh, we picked up at PAX Unplugged. It's called uh, 1942 USS Yorktown. So this is a small box game, and it is a cooperative game where everybody uh, controls uh, a airplane launched from the USS Yorktown, and it is the battle, I think around the Battle of Midway, where uh, you're trying to sink the Japanese carrier, the Shoho. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I never looked it up. Are you familiar with uh, this uh, conflict at all, either of you? Looking at you yeah, quite a bit. Jonathan? I've got a couple of different books all about it. Right. So that's what this is basically trying to, trying to simulate this sort of uh, this battle. Everybody, there's up to four players, four planes in play. And if you have four players, everybody controls one. Uh, and there's uh, a grid of spaces between like the one side, the Shoho and one side, the Yorktown. And at the beginning of every round, you flip over a card and put out some number of Japanese planes into the different places. And there's three types of planes. You can either have uh, a Jake, a Kate, or a Zeke. Um, and each of those are like a different difficulty of being able to shoot down. And <clears throat> if you ever have a chain of enemy planes from the one side of the board where the Shoho is over to the other side of the board where the Yorktown is, then the Yorktown has been spotted. And then when you flip up that card, that plane makes an attack on the Yorktown. And you have to roll some dice. And if you roll any doubles, then the Yorktown takes a hit. Three hits and you're dead. But you can get up there and you can um, you have four different types of actions you can do. So every round you flip up a card, put out some enemy planes, maybe make an attack. And then each player gets to choose an action. So you can move. Uh, you spend a fuel to move one space uh, uh, from one territory to another. Um, if there's an enemy plane there, you can make an attack on them. Or if you're already in a place of the plane, you can make an attack on the plane that's in your space and try to shoot it down. Shooting down planes earns you experience, and as you earn more experience, you'll eventually get to roll more dice. You start the game being able to roll three dice, 
because you're actually allowed to basically when you're trying to shoot down a plane, like for instance, a Kate, the easy one to shoot down, you want to roll the dice. And if you get doubles, you shoot it down. Uh, but you're allowed to keep rolling as much as you want, except unless you roll a one. If you roll a one, then you lose a fuel and that dies out. But then you can keep rolling. The, the Zeeks or zeros need four dice to shoot down. So if you're just using your base three dice, you don't even have enough. You can't shoot them down at the start of the game which uh, they're very difficult, but you get three experience when you do manage to take one down. <clears throat> the real twist, as I said, you can roll as much as you want. The thing is, the entire game is real time, where you have 30 minutes. You set a timer for 30 minutes at the start of the game, and if you haven't sunk the shoho by the end of 30 minutes, then you lose. So you can sit there rolling like, oh man, still can't get this double, can't get this double, but as more time you spend rolling, that clock is ticking, and you're losing overall time just trying to succeed on this one task. There's the other actions are attack actions. So if you're in the space with it, you can you spend a fuel to get an extra die. So that's how you can maybe take out a, a zero uh, at the start of the game. But you also get an extra die for every plane also doing an attack action in the same space with you. So you can also team up against planes. So the two, if you have two planes both attacking the zero at this with your base three dice at the start of the game, you'll get one for spending a fuel, and then you'll get another one for the other plane. So you'll each roll five dice to try to get the four of a kind that you need to shoot down the zero. So you've got a better chance of shooting them down. But to actually win the game, you need to not just shoot down planes, you need to sink the shoho, which means you need to get over to the other side of the board and then do a scout action to find it. Because at the beginning, it's in the fog, you don't know where it is. Uh, you roll a certain a certain number of combination of dice uh, like if you get three of a kind, you'll move up scouting one space. If you can get four of a kind, you'll move it up two spaces. If you scout it well enough, you'll get extra die when you try to attack it. And in order to attack it, what do you need if you want to attack a plane? If you're in a Dauntless, you need a bomb. So once you find it, somebody has to go back to the carrier, land, load on their bomb, take off, fly back to where the Shoho is. And by the way, while you have the bomb loaded on your plane, you roll one fewer die for all of your actions. And then you can finally make your attack run if the Shoho is spotted. And then you get to do damage to the Shoho if you have to roll four of a kind to do one damage, five of a kind to do two damage, or you can sink it in one shot if you can get six of a kind, which obviously you need a ton of dice in order to do. So you want to build up some experience. You want to have some other planes attacking with you so that you can get bonuses for them. It's like this this slow burn, like a lot of real-time games. It's like you get this intense like 30-second period to do all the things you need to do. And this isn't like that. This is like, it's slow. You've got this timer in your head. Like, oh man, this is going a long time. You look over at the clock, like, oh, you got 15 minutes left and we've barely spotted the, uh, the Shoho. We've, we've managed to, to beat it. I think twice, um, lost it like three or four times because there's, it's, it's really a challenge. So if you like airplanes and you like, uh, historical battles from world war II, does that sound like, uh, sound like you, Jonathan? Oh, completely, completely. Then you want to check this one out if you can find it it's not it's like it's the company that made it is um like out of spain so i'm not sure how how well distributed it is at this point but it should be available it was originally a kickstarter are you ready for some uh forgot my dice history facts i'm ready yes that was the battle of the coral sea which took place in uh, may of 42 and it's very important because it was the first time carriers actually battled against each other in uh, during without a war. having line of sight. Right? They couldn't see each other. It was just the yeah. planes. It was a it was a major battle, and it was the first time it kind of defined a lot of of the rest of the war, really. 
And technically, the Allies lost that battle, but it ended up being a win in the long run. But uh, yeah, the Shoho was uh, um, not a originally a carrier. She was originally designed as something else. I think it was a sub-support ship, and then they put the carrier deck on top. So she was she was considered a light carrier, not like a, a full size fleet carrier. Yeah, and if you if you look at the board, they have like the overhead view, and you can see the Shoho on one side and the the Yorktown on the other, and you can see like that the you know the nose comes to a, a point and like the, the deck over top of it. So they they did a really nice job with the art. You check this one out, Jonathan. If you see if you can, I don't know if you can track it down. It or sounds not. right up my alley. I'll have to try and and find a and, copy. And the the great thing is is like, man, we don't have a lot of time for a game. Here's a game. No more than half an hour. <laughs> I mean, you know, because cause you set a timer, and if you're not done in half an hour, yeah, you lose. <laughs> the other one I have on here for board games is um, is Gloomhaven, which uh, I am now, we're, I think we've passed, or we're right about the year two mark for the campaign that uh, I've been playing with my friends. We actually, this year, added a, a fourth player. It had been three of us for a while, and then at PAX Unplugged, um, a friend of my one of my other friends who's in the game um i met them and uh he said that he'd be able to play and so we now are playing with four people gloomhaven uh which if the listeners don't know is is right now the number one game on board game geek it is a massive game the box is is just huge and heavy um because there's just a ton of stuff in it it's kind of like a legacy game where you're unlocking stuff as you go the base of it, it's a tactical combat game where you have a character and you're basically going into a like a, a map with uh, enemies that uh, and fulfilling some kind of objective to complete the uh, the dungeon. It's a dungeon crawl at its core. And that could get really boring after a while. I mean, there's plenty of games like this, like Descent. But this one, you have your character and you're going through these different dungeons. But the game... It doesn't get samey uh, somehow. Part of it is um, the way that uh, a turn works is you have this whole hand of cards, which is actually really intimidating to start the when you're starting the game. This whole hand of cards with top actions and bottom actions, and you pick two cards to use on a turn, and you do the top of one and the bottom of the other. And the bottoms are usually like moves, so you move yourself a certain number of hexes on the board, and the top ones are generally more offensive, like an attack, and you can attack an enemy. And lots of them, you're just trying to kill all the enemies. You go through, you win, you get experience for different actions you do that you can advance your character with. Uh, a lot of this sounds like your basic role-playing, right? Kick down the door, kill the monsters, get the loot, go open levels so you can kick down bigger doors and kill bigger monsters and get more loot. The part where it's a little bit, where it really shifts is that you start with a character and at the, when you create it, you get a goal for that character, a personal goal that that character wants to complete. Once they do, they're done adventuring, and that character retires, and you can't play them anymore. They're they're just they're they're through. They're saying, "I'm not doing this adventuring thing anymore because I did the thing that I wanted to do for my whole life." And then you have to start a new character. Usually, when you do retire a character, you get to unlock a new character that has been you haven't been able to use before. There's six characters to start the game, and there's probably like ten more that you start that start locked that you can't use. So you retire a character, you get to open up something new, and this whole new character comes, because all these characters are really different. Um, they have, all have their own cards, the deck of cards that uh, they start with, 
when you go up a level, you get to add a new card to your pool. And so you get some different options of cards that you can take in with you. Um, and as, of course, the cards get more powerful as they go. And also when you advance, there's that modifier deck that I talked about. You get to change that. So you get to take out the negative cards or add in more positive cards or cards that give you elements that you might need to make your actions more powerful or to give more negative conditions or to heal yourself to all the totally different for each character, uh, the things that they can add in. So not only you're adding new cards, but you're changing this modifier deck and it's really satisfying character progression. And then you retire and you start a whole new character and start that learning process all over again. And now how does this new character work in with the other characters that are still in the group? And how can we develop a synergy um, to be able to succeed in these uh, scenarios? Which there's like over a hundred scenarios in the thing. It's not just like pick one to do. You start with the first one and then that leads to the second one. And then that unlocks two others. And then if you do another one, then that unlocks some more. And sort of this branching storyline. And um, certain uh, scenarios you do will block off other ones so that you can't do them um, because you're basically you're changing the world like hey this character that could have given you more quests you decided not to go with them and then now you've killed them and so you can't do the quest that they were going to give you so it's it's an evolving world as as you keep progressing through it and there's all sorts of side quests there's random uh scenarios that you can unlock if you uh, meet certain conditions there's just so much going on and after two years, it's like I'm still itching to play this game. Like, we only can get one scenario in in a night when we play. And it's just like, it's like, oh, man, I just wish we could just fire up another one. But it's already like 11 o'clock and we'd be here till 2, two o'clock in the morning if we tried to play again. I totally understand why it hit number one on Board Game Geek as far as like the quality of game. It is so much fun to figure out every every turn is a puzzle. But it is really complex. Like, I I have totally mystified as to how it actually got as popular as it is it's expensive it's like a hundred bucks the rule book is thick there's all sorts of little rules there's like a dozen different conditions like the poison condition versus the wound condition and uh, the muddle condition versus the stun condition and the disarm condition and all these things have their own rules there's a ton of different monsters with their own uh, decks of uh, monster activation cards the monsters all work on an AI that is sort of fiddly. I mean, it's just a testament to how great this design is that the game got so popular with all these hurdles of the cost and the complexity. Gosh, it's just such a great game. I'm having so much fun with it. We have already got the expansion that I'm not even sure when we're going to get to play. Their Kickstarter for like the second standalone game is going to be coming out, is going to be doing next month. So there's going to be a whole nother game like this one that I'm not even sure if we're going to get done with this one by the time that one delivers, but I'll, I'll play it. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. I can't imagine what the math behind the game w would have been with that much content. You know? Yeah. It's like, there's all these different characters and honestly, there's like an FAQ on board game. If you look it up, it's like pages and pages long, <laughs> it's, especially cause it's mainly just one guy, Isaac Childress, the designer was the only designer and obviously he had help with uh, playtesting and things like that but man it's just an achievement this game and if you haven't tried it i started a second campaign on tabletop simulator so you want to try this out i can show you how to play on tabletop simulator and you can get a feel for it and it's like it's overwhelming at first but it's just the way that the game keeps you engaged even though you're doing dungeon crawls over and over it's, it's just every turn is a puzzle and it's it's so much fun 
for Arkham campaign, like I've retired a couple characters. I'm getting close to another one. We have like totally new characters from when we started. The and the new characters, this finding the synergies is great. We've had some almost broken feeling synergies with some of our characters. <laughs> and it is it just feels so good when you get that, right? It's like it's like, man, I cr- we cracked the code on this and we're just destroying stuff because our characters work so well together. Really satisfying. Oh, that game has a really, really uh, uh, spectacular way of always coming back to remind you of just how brutal it can be. I feel like I'm doing all right. This is pretty. <gasps> Anything else about Gloomhaven? It sounds intense. Yeah, it's um, it's really good. Again, you guys want to try it sometime. I'll run you through it on Tabletop Simulator. We just got to find a time. Yeah, there's the killer right there. <laughs> find the time. Oh, so Robert, how are you feeling on um on our Not Alone? You've I've 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 wait for at least a mention like of our our Not Alone games, and you never you never talk about it. That's because Jean and I hate you so much. <laughs> I think I'm going to assimilate you. Yeah, no, I have a feeling what's going to happen. Not actually because of me. You've been you've been catching my wife much more than you've been catching any. Anyway. Yeah, I've been evading you. Okay. But yeah, yeah, you've been doing well this time, but uh, but not everybody. I think uh, no. I think I just got this someone someone this last time too trying to hide out in my lair. Tisk tisk tisk. Yep, yep, you did. So there you go. We're still having fun with not alone on yes. Game Arena. Yeah, I, yeah, I haven't been bringing it up because I keep forgetting about it. But yeah, we've been playing that pretty much nonstop. We always just re rack and just play fire again. a new fire up a new one. All right. I think that's it for me for board games. Yeah, uh, lots more side, especially with the digital version. Super awesome. Still love the game. Uh, I had a chance to uh, play Blood Rage recently. They did a Kickstarter for the Blood Rage Digital, and it had a bunch of physical rewards, including the playmat. And so, yeah, gave that a shot. And Blood Rage continues to be epic and wonderful and everything I ever wanted it to be and more. Uh, Marvel Champions. Um, that's the new um, LCG from FFG. And it's uh, fantastic, super thematic, so much fun to play. And it's got a, a fantastic, uh, you know, co-op game. Like, it, it's everything about it is co-op. You set up the cards so that there's the there's a, a core villain that you're generally fighting against. Then there will be some sub-villains generally and a bunch of little underlings. And you have to use your cards in a specific way to kind of undo their their schemes at the same time that you're trying to defeat them uh, in face-to-face combat. But what's interesting is your characters have different powers and different statistics, whether they're in hero mode or if you change them to their alter ego. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a neat little thought puzzle. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, and then uh, I had a chance to pick up a Wayfinders uh, from Pandasaurus recently, and um, that's a really fun kind of Euro-style game with an island theme. I haven't had a chance to play it too much yet, so I'm going to withhold judgment on that just yet because I'd like to get a couple more plays in. But one thing that I played a ton of was Flamme Rouge, and that is amazing. Have you? Do you remember talking about Flamme Rouge? You mean Flame Rogue? Sure, there you go. Uh, basically, it's a, a cycling game, and you have two different types of cyclists, a um, sprinter and um, a roulet. I, I don't know. I'm not French, and I speak the language quite poorly. But you have a bunch of cards, uh, a deck of cards for each of them, and you have to get them to work together uh, while selecting a card from your hand every time. And depending on what happens in the game, you can sometimes start to pick up basically fatigue cards which then clutter your deck with a bunch of very low number uh movement cards and each card that you play advances you on the board and you have to use drafting and whatnot to try and 
uh, get extra movement on the board by sticking with the pack. But if you're at the front of the pack, that's one great way to pick up a lot of the fatigue cards. So you have to really kind of time when you're going to make your move uh, at the near, near the end of the race to try and take the lead. And man, let me tell you, we played about a half dozen rounds of the thing. And in every round, the entire pack of, of bicyclists was nice and condensed. There was nobody getting left behind. And the finishes were, were down to the wire each time. Just so exciting. So well balanced. Just an amazingly balanced game. I've heard about this one. Definitely would like to give it a try sometime. Yeah, I, I really like it. I highly recommend it. It's uh, might be might be my favorite racing game on the market right now. Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't have a racing game in my collection, so we'll have to think about that. You, you could do you could do far worse. This game is really neat. I really like it. Sounds great. And that brings us to the end of this segment. We will return in just a few moments with our next segment. Uh, we will not be doing the news. In this particular episode, because we have this amazing guest on, but there's always time for No Time to Bond, and we'll be back in just a moment. We love getting feedback, so please let us know how we're doing by hitting us up in one of the following. You can join us on Patreon, where we post bonus content. You can also message us or tweet at us on the Twitter. Find us at Forgot My Dice. You can join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash FMD podcast. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give Forgot My Dice a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Lastly, for those of you seeking experiences beyond our concepts of pleasure and pain, set the Lamont configuration to full hell mode. Oddly, you can find us in several levels of the labyrinth as the only thing playing on the radio. Wait, what? I have such sights to show you, Jonathan. Ah, I need to take your Netflix account away from you. And welcome back from the break. Uh, as we mentioned before, no news today because we've got a guest and uh, we'd rather talk to him uh, than talk about, well, frankly, the lack of news. Uh, we found the Godzilla game for Robert. Yeah, Marvel United, Tallis. They're on Kickstarter. Go back them. They, uh, they announced Robert's the new going to buy a copy of Monopoly soon. Yeah, yeah, Godzilla Monopoly. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I've never seen you quite get as excited as you did over that. Uh, that you know what? We're not talking about that. Story. I may bump that to next time. No, no, move on, move on. Right, I got thoughts right, on it, but right. I don't know. Move on. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, well, it's time for our No Time to Bond segment, part five in our 26-part series, where we will be talking about uh, perhaps the stickiest of the Bond films, You Only Live Twice. Released on June 12th, 1967, budget of $10.3 million. It made 111.6. And this was Sean Connery's final Bond movie because he hated making it until he decided to make those other two. Fun fact, this movie was written by Roald Dahl, famed children's author. Yes, yeah, I saw that I, too. I noted that in the uh, in the initial credits too. It was like, oh, we have the whole like uh, Roald Dahl collection thing that the kids like uh, to read. It's like, oh, well, hey, it's uh, some pedigree there. <laughs> yeah, why don't you have the kids watch it? It's appropriate, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I did notice I was, as I rented on Amazon that it's listed as being PG. So I guess so. PG-13 did not mean the same thing back then. It's I think that would be pretty PG-13 by today's standards. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, <laughs> and even, even without all the people dying and comically falling... 
uh, onto the <laughs> so so many people uh, and then fall like a board just tumbled down. Can can I just say it's the first time we get a volcano lair. It's a legitimate volcano lair. That's all. I just wanted to throw that in there. I forgot how much of Austin Powers is directly based off of this film. Oh no this this film is the uh, the first Austin Powers movie. Yeah, I I did not realize that either going into it. I watched. Austin Powers, but never seen You Only Live Twice before. And then when I, you know, saw the cat, the <laughs> petting the cat, I was like, oh, that's the movie. <laughs> this is the one. Yeah, because Blofeld is in other Bond movies. But uh, yeah, this is the first time you see his face and he's bald with the scar and the, the goofy suit. and the, uh, He's had the cat the whole time. And uh, interestingly enough, I uh, um, do you remember uh, there's a character who's like MI6's guy in Japan named Hemington? Yep. That guy plays Bl- Blofeld two movies from now, <laughs> which is a little weird if you think about it. It's like, why? Because they say Blofeld, like, it's a lot of plastic surgery constantly and he has body doubles. Yeah, it's like, why did he choose that dude's face to steal at some point? Like, I don't get it, but whatever. He did. That totally happens. Okay, so so typically our format for these is we uh, we talk about the bad and then we talk about the good. So I don't think we've ever gotten like a plot synopsis because we assume you're just watching along with us. But in this one, Bond goes to Japan because Spectre is stealing astronauts cuz. <laughs> well, not just astronauts. Yeah. You're stealing the whole friggin' spaceship, man. Yeah. And, and, and cosmonauts. But yes. Yeah, so 1967 Japan. Uh, where do we begin? <laughs> well, shall we uh, address the elephant in the room? Sure. Yeah. So basically... At one point in the movie, Bond uh, uh, uses makeup to try and pass as a Japanese fisherman. Yeah, yeah, yellow face. And yellow face. Yeah, yellow face. It's a thing in this movie. And he just ends up looking like you said in the text you sent to me. He just ends up looking like a Vulcan. <laughs> it's it's really bad. It's, it's Yeah, it's like I, I, I kept trying to see how he looked Japanese and I couldn't see it. I, it's just, no... No, it just, it didn't work. And the thing is, the, the lead into it is like, we're going to make you Japanese. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> no, that's, uh. <laughs> We're just going to embrace racism momentarily. Yeah, no, please, please don't. Please don't try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every time he shows up with that on, I just keep going like, it's, it, it doesn't ever get better. Like, this, just stop, please. I was so happy when he took that swim and all the makeup fell off uh, <laughs> at, at near the finale of the movie. And I'm like, okay, just just let it go, guys. Just let it go, please. It wasn't working. <laughs> and, like, he inexplicably has to get married at that point, too, which was just odd. Yeah, it's like we, we, can't, we can't just tell them and pretend. No, we actually have to go through, like, a ceremony. And there's got to be, like, oh, all this angst by uh by bond about oh, i hope she's beautiful yeah yeah uh no and the absolute worst part speaking of the bad the japanese spy uh that's his wife she tells him in no uncertain terms that they will not be sleeping together and there's this part later in the movie where he's just staring at her sleeping like pissed <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> and i'm like oh dude creepy stop that's not what no just get some rest bond it's fine creeper ah yeah, creeper Sean Connery Bond is creeper. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the misogyny oh. is uh it's a period, you know, the 60s were a different time where Although I do have to say that the misogyny in this one is surprisingly lower than it was in the previous film. Yeah, I'll agree. I don't have that comparison to make. It was pretty it's like you know this is what 
Bond movies are about, right? I mean, this is not a secret that he basically sleeps with every, any girl that's on the movie. And that's how it works. But to, to actually see it like this, especially it's like, so there's the first girl that he was with that he sleeps with. And then he sleeps with another one of the villain girls after sleeping with her and then goes back to the first girl. And then she dies and it's like, oh, all right, let's go on. Hey, I'm going to get married. And then now I want to sleep with this girl. It's like, really? Like that? Yeah. Wow. That's wow. I mean, wow. Yeah. Reading the books is worse. I read the first five, if I remember correctly. And what's really weird in those and jarring from, you know, our more modern or whatever point of view is like at the beginning of the books, he gets debriefed by M about what happened in the last book as kind of like the last time on James Bond. And he will go through the plot of what happened and he will not mention the woman in it at all. It was like, she just didn't exist. Uh, And even when they're like important to the plot, because you know, they're like the focus of the bad guys, he will just neglect to mention that there was a woman involved at all. And, and, uh, it's it yeah that 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 part doesn't age well either but yeah this this one well in this one like that first girl was like his deus deus es machina happening right at the moment zoom in load him up and drive away as he's once again blown his cover and running for his life from the building <laughs> of the bad guys like yeah there comes a point where you really do start to wonder like is he l- the worst spy ever because his cover stays intact about 18.2 seconds in any given movie. Yeah, and then it's a running gun battle until he gets saved by the girl at just the dramatically appropriate moment. A- anything else bad to talk about? Well, I mean, in the grand scheme of Bond movies, this was by far one of the least problematic in terms of sexism, uh, you know, compared to the, the, the past three. But that said, they, they hit an all-time low on the racism front. And that's really what what hurts the most. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Like, okay, so Dr. No had Asian people in it, and then they skipped it from with Russia with Love. And then we had Goldfinger, where he had the, the Asian goon squad. Yeah, but they're all treated like idiots. Yeah, yeah. And then they skipped it in Thunderball. And then we, ha- we have Asian, a, a lot of Asian characters again. I'm like, I, you know, I was, I was talking to my wife about it. I'm like, what is it about this time? Like, they're fixated on it. And she's like, it's Vietnam, you know? Like, that was going on around the same time, you know, 67? And yep. and in the the aftermath of the Korean War, and it was like, yeah, that just just you know, Asian villainy was on the brain, I guess, at the time. And and well, and remember, a lot of the people that were making these movies, and then uh, and Ian Fleming himself, were all World War II veterans. Yeah, and so they were carrying a lot of that kind of nascent racism along with them. Yeah, not not excusing it, but no. At least understanding uh, where what what's driving it, because otherwise it really does feel completely at random. All right, Ray, do you have any more bad that you you remember from uh, the movie? I mean, nothing that is as um as base as you know racism and sexism. I mean, there's certain plot issues that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, do tell. So it's like, are we going to train you? Like we we have ninjas. I'm going to train this ninja army but but they're basically just just charge in like they they guess they sneak up to a certain point but then it's like all these highly trained probably spent like to be as good as they were with the swords and parish you know dropping in it's they're basically cannon fodder it's like these highly trained soldiers you it's supposed to be like commandos but they're running in they're dying by the dozen of course and on top of that like uh people try to kill bond twice 
in the secret ninja school. <laughs> yeah. Like people have snuck in and have attempted to murder him. <laughs> and they're like, I don't know this guy. And it's like, how did he get in the building then? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and then it's a good thing they had unlimited of them because it didn't seem to matter how many of them died as they were assaulting the volcano uh, fortress. Oh, they respawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just had their, their, their 30 second respawn timer and, and then they charged in again. And the only, the only other thing that like really caught me is the, the helicopter sequence, which was, was, was kind of fun, but the editing in it was just, <laughs> I guess there's only so much you can do at the time with the budget and the fact that you're using helicopters, I'm sure is a horrifically expensive uh, sequence to film, but it's like, I couldn't get any idea of what was really going on. It's just like a close-up of the guns firing, close-up of the back of his thing as he zooms this way and that, and suddenly he's above them. Suddenly, there's a shot of them all just sitting there flying in formation, and one of them blows up. <laughs> it's like, okay, aerial action sequences have come a long way in the past 50 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kind of live <laughs> tweeting it at Jonathan as we were watching it, and I, I had a I had thoughts during that sequence too. Uh, he has this helmet on as he's flying it with a camera embedded in it, to so they could see what he's doing. And the camera is like comically huge <laughs> on on this helmet he's wearing. He looks like a member of Devo or something. Like it's it's bizarre. And I just um, I, I I tweeted this to or texted this to Jonathan, and, I, and now I got to do it. I'll try to do it in uh, Q's voice. It's like now, James. What we have over here is the most advanced camera miniaturization that mankind can muster. The helmet camera is discreet, unobtrusive, nearly invisible to the naked eye, and most importantly, not at all goofy or embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's another time when um, they're tracking like a airplane, I think it was, and then like they actually had on the video screen in the car, like the picture, the overhead shot of the airplane. And it's like, where's the camera that's watching yes! this airplane? Yes, from that they're seeing. How are? Where's the other plane that's watching the plane? So they're getting the <laughs> shot on the screen in the car that the characters are watching. If you think too hard, your brain will explode. You can't think I mean, that the, hard. The, they they were linking up to the film cameras, the the movie cameras that they're shooting it with were linked by Bond. He's that good of a spy that he could what actually. You're looking at. Is now. Everything that's happening now is happening now. <laughs> when will now be then? Soon. Soon. <laughs> the construction of the film is is extremely 1960s, and that's, that's there's nothing you can do about it's, that. It's hard. You can't hold it up to like the modern standards. But I will say, uh, on the flip side, if we can um, come to that, like with that helicopter sequence, as bad as the editing was, the fact that you know, there's always this point in these movies where you have like a, the iconic Bond theme, right? That's like such a integral part of the experience when they really just lay into that theme like they did for that entire helicopter sequence was just the Bond theme. And it's like, all right, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. We got the Bond theme. We got him filing this thing, shooting his missiles. And I don't care if he magically appears above them somehow so he can drop the aerial mines that have to be, <laughs> have to be let down above the thing that you're that makes no sense. <laughs> that, that that slowly get lowered with parachutes that it would, you know, any pilot worth their salt would easily avoid with a small flick of the wrist. But no, they plow right into them. Yeah, but you play that Bond theme, like that full orchestral is like, there's no, this is no sub theme. This is, this is it. It's like, all right, I'm in. This is awesome sequence. I don't care about the editing. You give me that music and the action. This is it. This is what I'm here for. I loved it. 
All right, my my thing I really have to point out is something wonderful is uh, early on in the movie after uh, the character Henderson gets killed by an assassin, Bond chases him out, takes him out, and then gets in the getaway car to like see where they're going to take him. And he pretends he's like been stabbed or something. So the goon like picks him up over his back and takes him up. That guy was played by Peter Fanny Malvia, grandfather of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And you can see it and it's eerie because like they have a fight up in the villain lair. And there's this part where Bond's like trying to hit him with a, a, a sofa. <laughs> and and there's this part where he knocks it away and he like Who uses a sofa? Yeah. And he has this like look on his face, like like this smile, like I'm gonna get you. And it's it's like that split second, it's the rock. Like you can see the family resemblance. And and when I read that, I'm like, really? And I looked, I'm like, oh my god, it is the rock's grandfather. That's bizarre. He has his grandfather's smile. That's amazing. <laughs> So that that was a high point for me when I just saw that like flash of the rock like beamed back in time. I, I was I was happy with that. <laughs> he poked him with a sofa. <laughs> I, like, what? Really? I that's okay. Okay. Okay, James. You do you. If it's if it's ever on a streaming service and you see it pop up, just fast forward to that scene. And now that you see that, you can't unsee it. Like it, that, there's this flash where he's smiling. He's like, I'm going to get you. And it, it's just the rock. It's so weird. Like, it's just this flash of like time and space. It's really cool. Uh, as far as the Bond movies go, generally I have some fond memories of Bond movies from my youth, but I have to say this one has never really stuck out for me as being particularly competently put together. Aside from all the other things that we've pointed out, it's just not a good film. Yeah, I can see that. It's it's got some goofy problems. I get why they stole Doctor Evil from it because like that that is actually the other good thing. The volcano set is amazing. Like it's really good. It's got this goofy monorail that goes around it's it. Huge. It's huge. Yeah, apparently it, it had the it cost more to build that than the entire first movie, Doctor No. And you could see it from three miles away because it was so big. <laughs> yeah, it was really impressive, and it's like. So he's he's coming down the steps. They're fleeing the exploding control center. He's got his buddy, like the Japanese guy that was the evil guy, and James Bond and uh, Blumenthal has his gun. And he turns around, the price of failure, points it at Bond, and then shoots the other guy. And then turns, <laughs> and, and turns around and leads Bond on. And Bond is just walking behind him like, he's turned his back on me. I could probably take him out, but... Nah, I'm just, I guess I'm not going to do that. And then he gets his monorail and then turns and wants to shoot Bond. Why don't you just shoot him at the same time as the other guy? Shoot, shoot him first and then shoot the other guy. He wasn't expecting it. Dad, Dad, I'll go get my gun. We'll shoot him right now. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but see, this is this is one of those moments where it, this is why I liked uh, uh, Goldfinger so much as a villain. Because Goldfinger doesn't get caught up in all these tropes that we now make fun of because of uh, Austin Powers. Goldfinger just says, no, I don't care. I'm not going to tell you anything. I just expect you to die. <sighs> yeah. Oh, Blofeld. He's such a goofy villain. I had fun watching the movie. I mean, I'd never seen it before. And uh, there was a lot of cringy moments in there. It's like, oh, okay, you're, okay, you're going to do that. Okay, fine. You, okay, you do that. There was a lot like more racist uh, in this movie and like yellow face and just like that. But there wasn't a lot of like misogynistic, like as, as much as the other ones. You're like, like, oh, good on you, Bond. Like, you're just creeping now. Like, that's an improvement. <laughs> take, take what we can get. I still can't believe how much money these movies made. 
<laughs> there'll be a noticeable dip in that with our next movie, which is why there, he was the only he was only Bond once. But we'll get oh, to George God. Lazenby oh, on the next episode of the Forgot My Bond Dice podcast for uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, the the Bond where he breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> Oh, oh. The 60s were a goofy time, man. <laughs> where where Blofeld, he meets Blofeld again and they don't recognize each other and now he's played by Tony Savalas because why not? <laughs> it's like the, the last movie. <laughs> Who loves you, baby? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. You're in the life, me, Jonathan. All right, it is time for our You're in the Life segment. This is where we look back with our uh, telescope of through time. Uh, and what we did 365 days ago, and it was, uh, what, in the 50s, yeah? Yeah, uh, Forgot My Dice episode 57, six-foot sub of podcasts, well, we did Heroes of Tiranoth. I still love that game. Have you played it since then? Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of one-player stuff. Okay. Have you have you heard of it, Ray? Or it's, uh, it's based loosely off of the Warhammer game that they did that they lost the license for, if I remember the episode correctly. Yeah, so it's it's loosely based off of Warhammer Quest. It's it's roughly the same idea. It cleans up the engine quite a bit, and um, it's by the the Sadler Brothers. If you're familiar with them, uh, them as designers, yeah, um, haven't haven't seen or played this one. Uh, probably the most I know about it is from uh, when you guys talked about it last time. I'd love to give it a try. I love that type of game. It's a solid single or multiplayer co op adventure game, and it, it does it really really well. You, you have it, Jonathan. I do, I do indeed, and I was really, really hoping that we'd see some uh, expansions between then and now, but unfortunately there haven't been any that I know of. Uh, If you bring it over, I'd be happy to give it a spin and we can talk about it again sometime. Um, It's only, what, probably 2,000 miles, something like that? Yeah, if I leave now, I should be there in two days. Yeah, this is a Fantasy Flight one, right? Yeah, Uh that's the thing, is like, if the game doesn't hit, they, they don't support I mean, they usually do at least one, but it's like I have um, Battle Lore Second Edition, and uh, you know they they put some stuff out at at it, but uh, they're I guess probably good business decision. But if the game's not hitting, then they just let it go. And the problem is, is so many of their games are built around expansions. You know, that's their business model: is build a game and then have all these ways to expand it. But if it doesn't doesn't hit, then we're just going to let it go. And so if you bought into the game then you're sort of left with not as complete a product as you might have hoped. So hopefully they come back to uh, Heroes of Terranoth, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. Also, notably on that episode, we congratulated you, Ray, because uh, your daughter, your, your your youngest's daughter, right? Yep. Yes, yeah, yeah, your daughter was born, yeah. so we, we wished you congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, she's doing great. I've talked about it in the group, but obviously I haven't been on the show. She was uh, very ill last year. Um, she, uh, came down with a case of infant botulism, which if you don't know, is a very rare disease, like less than a hundred cases nationwide. You get it from soil, right? Yeah. That's mostly where it comes. It can also get from honey. So this is why all honey bottles say, do not give to kids under your age. So it, uh, what it does is the, uh, the botulism sticks in their gut and starts secreting these paralytic compounds or whatever, and they start losing muscle control. And in the worst scenarios, you'll have um, little babies in the hospital on respirators because they lose control of their lungs. We didn't get that far, uh, but uh, Leanna still spent two weeks in the hospital, uh, which was a very challenging time for us last May. 
But uh, the great thing is, is that uh, <clears throat> with the treatment, uh, the baby baby immunoglobulin uh, treatment, uh, they do get a full recovery. So she is in great shape now, fully recovered, um, healthy, doing everything that a one-year-old should do, uh, even though... And apparently climbing ladders from what you yeah. said earlier. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, We have the ladders going up to the bunk beds, and she loves to climb up and try to work her way back down again. Which is always oh Amelia's a climber too. It drives me up the wall. I've never had a climber. No, before. yeah, oh, geez, lost so many of our kids. Like we have stools in the kitchen, so the smaller kids can get up to cabinets from the counter, and she'll climb up on the stool, and then she'll climb up onto the bar of the stool, hanging onto the, trying to hang onto the counter, and the one of them has a curved one, and she almost fell off because her feet just slid off the side of the stool. It's like no, don't climb up there. You're one. Come on. We don't want you to. Even, we have this stuff off on the counter, so you don't get it. And there she's, she's just not buying in. And uh, it was a tough year last year, but uh, but she's fantastic. Had her one-year party, and she enjoyed her cake. And uh, otherwise, didn't really seem to care. Probably knew what was going on, because that's what one-year-olds do. It's like, what's, what is all these people here? I don't know. Oh, this sweet thing. Okay, I guess I'll eat this. Yeah, it's around three that they start remembering stuff, I remember. Because Awen's, a- like, she realized next Halloween was coming. When we said Halloween was coming, she remembered like, that's the time I get candy. And she got really excited. (laughs) Also, uh, notably, I listened to this episode. I I had just gotten over being sick and in my fever delirium, I started playing Dragon Quest Builders again, the original, even though the sequel was about to come out (laughs) because I was just, I was just out of it. Uh, We were playing Battle Chasers back then. And yeah, just watching stuff. Swords of the Serpentine, Ant-Man and the Wasp, that type of stuff. So good, good times. God, Ant Man and the Lost was awesome. I really enjoyed that movie. <laughs> so, oh, and, uh, uh, the we talked about the Wiz Kids uh, miniature of the shark that was bursting out of the water, which has now come out, and I I don't own it, which I is a failing on my part. I should go down to my FLGS and get it because that that's an amazing mini. Hold on, I'm looking him up. I, 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 oh, I forgot about this. Oh, the shark? You forgot about the shark? <laughs> oh my God, he's beautiful. I forgot about him. <laughs> I need to buy this from my buddy Joe. He's terrified of sharks, like unbelievably terrified of it. Like if we if we if we hop into a pool, he will just without even thinking about it constantly scan around looking for sharks. In a like bro, we're we're we live inland. There's literally not a possible way for a shark to enter this water, not to mention it wouldn't be able to survive. And and he still looks at me, he's like, Yeah, but I I still need to look. <laughs> Alright, Jonathan, play us out. Let's end this. All right, that brings us to the end of our Year in the Life segment, which means it's time for another quick break. And when we return, we will be deep diving into Root. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. And welcome back from the break. It is now time for us to deep dive one of the biggest releases from Gen Con 2018. Really, frankly, long overdue for us to have a good discussion about on the show. And that is Root. Now, as normal, I usually read the text in my best NPR voice, but we've got a professional on the show. So I will give my NPR hat uh, over to you, Ray. 
the nefarious Marquise de Cat has seized the great woodland, intent on harvesting its riches. Under her rule, the many creatures of the forest have banded together. This alliance will seek to strengthen its resources and subvert the rule of cats. Root represents the next step in our development of asymmetric design. Each player in Root has unique capabilities and a different victory condition. The cats play a game of engine building and logistics while attempting to police the vast wilderness. The Eerie musters their hawks to take back the woods. The Alliance hides in the shadows, recruiting forces and hatching conspiracies. Meanwhile, the Vagabond plays all sides of the conflict for their own gain while hiding a mysterious quest. Explore the board, fight other factions, and work towards achieving your hidden goal. Root is a game of adventure and war in which two to four players battle for control of a vast wilderness. Oh, I got chills. So tell us, sir, how does Root play? All right. I remember Jonathan told me, because they had this at the library, and I got it, and I just I just didn't have the time to go through it, because it's yeah. a deep game to only have for three weeks. That is understandable, yes. So, welcome to Root. Yeah, I actually um, uh, was a part of the original Kickstarter for Root. I saw it, and um, the art especially really drew me in, and I'm also a big fan of asymmetric games, which this is, as you heard from the previous copy, an asymmetric game. What does that mean? That means that every character controls a faction in this world of Root. In the base game, there is the Marquise de Cat, there is the uh, Eerie Dynasties, there is the Woodland Alliance, and there is the Vagabond. Each of these factions plays very differently. The goal of the game is to score 30 victory points, but the primary method that each of the factions uses to do that is quite different. For instance, the Marquise de Cat wants to control and build up the woodlands for their economic purposes, so they will score points when they build buildings. They can build three types of buildings. They can build sawmills, they can build recruiters, and they can build workshops. The sawmills generate wood, which they use to build more buildings. Every time they build a building, they score points. So it's really great to have sawmills so you can build lots of buildings. Uh, the thing is, there are other factions out there that are going to try to take the woodlands away from you. In order to fight them off, you need warriors. The way you get warriors is you build recruiters and you use the recruit action to put more warriors on the board that you can then use to hold your territory or take territory away from your opponents. Then there are the workshops, which you can use to craft items uh, there's the deck of cards in the game. There are certain ones you can use to craft things that will also score you points. So you can make things for points too. The thing about the Marquise de Cat is at the start of the game, they already control the woodlands. They have warriors in every clearing except for one on the opposite side of their keep. So they're everywhere at the right at the start of the game, <clears throat> but they're also spread very thin. It's easy to uh, for them to be pushed back, uh, but they really have to... S- be able to solidify an area to be able to build up their economy in order to be able to push out and control the game. The Eerie Dynasty now uh, is very different. In the story of the game, they were in control of the forest uh, initially before their government collapsed and the Marquise was able to come in and take over. They start in one corner, the opposite corner from the Cat's Keep, the one place where there are no cats to start, with six warriors. Their society is very rigid. You start with a leader, and then there is a decree that must be followed, which uh, consists of four actions of recruit, move, attack, and build. And the Eerie scores points for spreading out and getting their roosts into different clearings, which is their building. For every roost they have out, at the end of the turn, they will score more points. 
So they don't get a point for putting it out, but at the end of the turn, they get points for having a bunch of roosts out. The thing is, at the start of their turn, they have to add a card to the decree. So you have this deck of cards, and you have to add it to one or two cards to those four actions. And if at any point you can't completely resolve your decree, you go into turmoil. Your government collapses, your decree is cleared out, uh, you lose points uh, for some of the cards that are in your decree, and you uh, don't lose your roosts or your warriors, but you have to basically start over again. Because for every card in your decree, you get to do another action. So if you can keep that balanced, you can end up doing a ton of things. I'm going to recruit three guys here, and then I'm going to move here and fight here, and then move over here and fight there and build a new roost out there. It can get really overwhelming until it's too much to manage and it falls apart, and then you have to start over again. The Woodland Alliance is very different. At the start of the game, they have nothing on the board. And what they can do is, by using the favor of the inhabitants, they can spread sympathy for their cause. You put sympathy into a clearing, and not only does that punish other players for coming in there, or the other players can attack your sympathy, they can basically wipe out your supporters in an area, but when they do that, when they move soldiers in or when they wipe out your sympathy, it gets you more supporters. So you get cards from them that you can then use to spread more sympathy, or what you really want to do is when you have sympathy in a clearing, you can have a revolt in that clearing which clears out all the enemy units that are in there. No matter what's in there, it'll just wipe them all out as the woodland rises up and just kicks everybody out. And then you start being able to put warriors on the board that the Woodlands Alliance can then to sort of um, start spreading out and securing and holding territory. The way that the Woodland Alliance scores their points is by putting out that sympathy, though. So they can score points even without having their bases on the board, but it is a lot harder. Finally, there's the Vagabond which unlike the other ones, isn't like a group, but just one guy, right? You're your lone adventurer going around the woodlands. There's quests they can complete. There's ruins they can explore. They score their points uh, in a bunch of different ways for the quests. They get points for exploring ruins. If they start fighting with one of the um, other factions, they become hostile to that faction. Then they score points for every warrior of that faction they, they take out. But they can also get points for aiding other um, factions. You can give other factions cards, and if you do that enough, then you'll move up this relationship track until they get to the point where you'll get two points every time you help another faction. The way that they manage their actions is they have items. They have boots for moving, they have swords for attacking, they have hammers for crafting, and when you use the action, you flip over the token, it becomes exhausted. At the beginning of your turn, you can flip some of them back over again so that you can do more things on the next turn. Uh, there are several different types of Vagabond with uh, all of their own uh, special abilities. What you get is all these different factions. When you throw them on the board together, the dynamic between them is is really fascinating because they all interact in different ways. With They're generally trying to do similar things usually, but the way that they accomplish them and score their points are so different that it comes together in a really interesting way. One thing, of course, uh, with the play is that it is can be a challenge to teach uh, because each faction, there's a lot of similarities, like the way factions move is all the same. The way you battle is all the same. Um, you're all trying to score points, right? But on the other hand, it's like, okay, you do these things to score points and then other players need to worry about these things or they're not going to know how to stop you. One great thing, I don't know if uh, this is dipping into components, but each player gets a board that has like a step-by-step, -step, all right, first you do this on your turn, then you do this on your turn, then you do one of like three of these things on your turn, and then you do this and then you're done. 
So the game really does a lot to help you get through a turn. It still is a lot to learn. Um, and so can be uh, a challenge to teach. And also the first time or two you play, you're kind of just figuring things out. It, you need to be able to invest uh, some time into it to really get to a, a, a good competitive place. So, Ray. Yes. How's that rule book? The rule book is interesting because there's actually in the base game, there's three uh, things that you get to help you play the game. There is a learn to play guide which will step you through basically all the factions and how they work. There is a walkthrough, which will actually step you through a couple turns of the game. And then finally, there's the Law of Roots, which is the base rulebook. So they're cognizant of the challenges, right? The Law of Root rulebook is a throwback to uh, the old SPI wargame days with a Section 4, 4.1, Craft, 4.1.1, Cost, <laughs> and then... And then it'll reference crafting an item. Whenever you craft an item, 4.1, you score the victory points listed on the card. It's very heavily cross-referenced, right? And very organized. Start off with golden rules. And then section two is key terms and concepts and goes through all of those. And then there's a section on victory. How do you win? And then how do you do the basic actions? And then each of the factions has their own section that goes in detail through all of their special rules all of their things that they do on a turn and what they all mean and what you need to do in great detail. This law of root is actually very good for reference. You, it's uh, really easy to like, all right, I'm playing the wooden lines and I want to know what, what happens when I revolt. Let me go. Th what are those steps? It does say on your player board, but say you want to make sure you get in all the details, flip to the wooden lines section, uh, go down until you get to the revolt and it says, remove enemy pieces and place a base and warriors as follows. You may revolt any number of times. And that's 8.4.1. Then subsection 1, choose clearing. Subsection 2, send, spend supporters. Uh, and so on. There's a lot here, but it's organized really well. Uh, I think they did a really good job, especially considering they have the separate learn-to-play guide that is you know, more natural language and step through the game. And then the Law of Root, which is a really hardcore reference uh, you want to know something, you can look it up in here and you, sh you can find it very quickly. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the art direction and whatnot of the game and, and, and just how it's beautiful. Like the, the art was really, really striking. I remember the art's super standout. That's one of the things that really caught my attention. The art style is amazing. And it carries through to every aspect. The board is is gorgeous. And now with new expansions, like well, first of all, the board is double sided. There's like a like a summer side, and then the opposite side is a winter side um, of the board with like a different arrangement. The art is is fantastic. All the cards like have these this this whimsical uh, sort of uh, fairy tale style art with these you know anthropomorphic animals, these cats and birds and everything. It's amazing. Uh, the pieces, the meeples, each of the the meeples for the different factions. Uh, you have to look at these, look at the images of these things. Is they they have so much character in just the meeple, right? The cats look sort of aggressive and angry. The woodland alliance is like has like sort of a wide eyed look. The um, vagabond looks kind of shifty. It, all in just this little meeple that is is so evocative of the different faction. Like every level, the components on this. You can tell there's obviously a ton of care and put into crafting every little bit. And it just it looks beautiful on the table with a lot of color. 
and the <clears throat> a lot of little like treasures in the art, but but everything is still pretty clear as to where it is. It's just a fantastic job, top to bottom with components, even to the point where when you're doing combat, you roll two dice for uh, the attacker just rolls two dice and the attacker gets a number of hits that's on the higher die and the defender gets a number of hits that's on the lower die. And it only goes zero, one, two, or three. So you only need a four-sided die uh, because there's only four values, right? Yeah. But they don't give you a four-sided die. They give you a 12-sided die that has zero, one, two, or three repeated. So you can actually have a nice rolling experience. And there's these big, chunky dice. Oh, that's um, cute. Yeah, that is so, cool. Like at every step, like the leader games just put a ton of care into this. And, uh, and I love looking at it every time I get it out. In the base game, uh, is there anything off in the execution of it? Just listening and with my own experience of renting it from the library, I would say that the complexity is is a problem because it, it, you said it yourself. It's a little hard to learn. The thing is, each faction itself is not that hard to learn, right? As a whole, there's a lot to a lot of information to take in. Each piece is not so bad and it's laid out really well. So it's hard to teach like to a group because you have to spend time on everybody going over all their stuff. And again, they tried to do as much as they could. Each faction has a card that you can read out loud. These are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. These are the things that you want to do. These are the things that other people should try to do to stop you. They put a lot of work into making it as accessible as they can. But there's just no getting around the fact that there's a lot to it. So yeah, if you're sit down and you want to learn this thing, you pretty much are going to have to do like do that sample walkthrough probably on your own just to try to get a feel for things. There's just no way around a game that's this asymmetric, you know, this this much differences. It, it, it's one of those situations where it's going to reward it, right? Like the, the more you put into it, the more rewarding a situation it will be. Exactly. I, I've got a couple games similar to this where, where mastery really only comes once you've had an opportunity to play as each faction a couple of times. Like Dune comes to mind, Forbidden Stars comes to mind. Where if you don't have an intimate knowledge of each faction, you don't also don't know how to play against them. I think this is not maybe quite as bad as some of those because of all the materials they give you. That makes it a little bit easier to climb that curve. But in the end, the first game, you're just figuring your own stuff out. Like you don't have the, the scope or capacity to then try to pay attention to what other people are doing. And because this is such a heavy conflict game, you have to be able to do that. You know, you have to be able to look and say that situation that that player in is scary for me because I know that if I don't do anything about it, then they're going to explode and there's nothing I'm going to be able to do to stop them. The Woodlands Alliance is big for this because they start with nothing on there. They seem so not threatening and it's punishing for you to go after them. But when they start exploding and building up, they can be really hard to knock out. And then when they start spreading from their bases, they can just suddenly start scoring 10 points around and be done basically 15 to 30 in two turns. So it's cool because you got a faction that does that, right? But if you're learning the game and you don't know that's going to happen, it's like, oh, well, I'm fighting with this guy over here and suddenly he wins and I don't even know what happened. That's the real challenge for this game. You know, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me to say that's off in the execution because that's just the nature of the beast, but it is a real challenge for people who want to get into it. All right, so we mentioned some expansions. The The base game itself comes with uh, four factions, and then I'm looking, there seems to be about four more uh, through an expansion that came with the Kickstarter and then the, the Underground one as well. Right, so in the Riverfolk expansion, you get the um, Riverfolk Company, who are the Otters, which is, again, a totally different faction. They're merchants. 
uh, basically they have they can put up their services for sale that people can spend essentially their warriors to buy stuff. You can buy use of their 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 warriors as mercenaries, or you can use the river as a road, or buy cards out of their hand. And they score points for putting out trading posts and uh, collecting interest on the funds that they've uh, they've earned through selling their their wares. A totally different feel from any of the other ones. They're not even really trying to fight very much. Um, and then there's also the uh, the lizard cult, which uh, I haven't actually played that one too much. It's a very strange one where they are trying to spread gardens around because they're trying to recruit people into their cult. The Riverfolk expansion also comes with materials to play a second Vagabond, so you can have two Vagabonds on the board at once. And then in the new Kickstarter, so that one uh, released with the original Kickstarter. In the new Kickstarter, they um, have the Underground expansion, which has the um, the Underground Duchy, which is moles. Uh, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You're saying there are mole people. Yes, they're mole people from underground. They're underground, and then they can uh, build tunnels to pretty much anywhere on the board. So they can pop up almost anywhere um, just at a moment's notice after building up some warriors in their uh, in their underground layer that only they can uh, start in. And then the other one from the new uh, Kickstarter expansion is the Corvid Conspiracy which are more birds, but instead of like larger birds, they're crows. And they score points by putting out plots. They're trying to basically mess with everybody. And there are these plot tokens that they can put out. Um, they can spread across the board very easily, but they're spread thinly. And then they have to be able to kind of congregate there to be able to uh, execute the plots, which can be anything from a snare that keeps enemies from being able to move away. Or there can be a bomb that just blows up everything all the enemy pieces in the in the space, which is terrifying if you're another uh, faction, or like a uh, one that'll help them draw more cards or spread their warriors out even more, and so they get points for having a lot of these plots out there. So where would you say the sweet spot for this game exists? Is it you know four players? Is it playing with everything under the sun? Like what what's kind of the most rewarding, or is it one of those rare games where any value kind of dials it in just so? I think four players is going to be your sweet spot. It's a good balance between a lot of stuff going on on the board. It's a good balance between a lot of stuff going on the board, but not having to wait a whole lot of time for your for things to come around to you. In theory, you can play a whole ton of players, but the downtime can get can get a bit tiresome. Yeah. Um if you're playing with like six people. So there's one other thing to mention with the player count, right? Say you only got 3 people, uh but you want to play a four player game. There's some options for automated players. In the uh, Riverfolk expansion, they had the Mechanical Marquis, um, which you can add into the game as another player. You can either play against it, or you can just have it as like your fourth player when you have three human players. And it, it's just a part of the game, and it can win by scoring points. People online liked the idea of that, but they didn't think the execution was great. Uh, because it sort of does its own thing. It doesn't actually act like the player marquees. So a uh, fan uh, started making their own automated factions. They called, called it the Better Bot Project, <laughs> which Leader Games then took and made into the Clockwork expansion that they had as a part of the Kickstarter for the Underworld uh, expansion. So, they had, so that comes with automated uh, factions for the marquees. The, they have the Mechanical Marquees 2.0, they have the Automated Alliance, they have the Electric Eerie, and the Vagabot. <laughs> Vagabot. 
I like it. And you can you can add like any of those in to just basically fill out the game. And they have some fairly simple steps that you go through on their turn. They do some stuff that sort of is like what a player would do. And then they'll score points, but you can actually play off of them and use that to fill out your game so that you can, you know, have a fuller game with fewer players. And to round us out, is there any one last thing you want to tell us about the game? Root is is a really solid game. Um, I really enjoy it, but it's it's hard to get around the the uh, the barrier of the teaching, and it does take some time. It's not a, a super long game, but especially when people are learning, right? Um, the game can drag uh, past that two hour mark, especially when you're playing with kids and you want them to just take their turn. Come on, just. <laughs> which has been my experience recently just 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 pick you i know you've got five actions you can do you got one action left just pick something and do it you really need to be able to make good on the investment that you need to put in to get the most out of this game it's not a dabbler game it's not one to just bring out like every six months or so you, you're going to want to have a group that you can play it with repeatedly but the depth here is is just outstanding i mean there's so much that these, the interaction between these factions brings to the table. And then with the new expansion, two new maps that you can play on with different features, a lake that you can use a raft to go across or mountains with passes you have to clear and a tower in the middle that you can score points on and the way the different factions interact. There's a lot to get out of this game if you can invest into it what it takes to get that, that reward out. I would like to throw in that uh, the role-playing game, they actually, I, I was reading about the construction of it and part of it is using that map. And so if you have the board game, you can actually use that to play the role-playing game about clearing out the kingdom and using the meeples and stuff. So I, I, I'm not sure how that interaction works because obviously it's not out yet and no one's played like a let's play. But yeah, mm-hmm. like actually using the board game components with the role-playing game, I thought was a very clever move on their part. Yeah, that that uh, Kickstarter is good. My fr- one of my friends um, backed it, and so I'm hoping to get a chance to see the stuff and give it a try. Nice. All right, Jonathan, you got any last questions or anything about this? No, I'm excited to try it. I just the the, the big hurdle for me is just the the time to come up to speed and fully understand all the different factions. But it's nothing I haven't seen before in a lot of different games, which is exciting. Just come on, come on over, Jonathan. I'll, I'll teach you, no problem. <laughs> Maybe next Valentine's Day. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica, Gina, by your powers combined, send us both. Maybe. Yeah, well, I, the thing is, you've already got one long-distance friend to go see, so I, I, I think... Yeah. <laughs> hey, I... I get around, so it's I don't mind the travel. I like travel. Yeah, maybe come come to come to Pax Unplugged next year. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast, number eighty-one, which is hard to believe in our countdown to one hundred. Nineteen to go. Yes. Once again, as always, join us in all of our digital domains. We'd love to hear from you. As uh, Ray can attest to, we do talk regularly, although that's more Robert than I. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do occasionally pop in and say words. Yeah, it's always nice to be able to go in and comment on the the shows. Lots of times I wish I could I could be there listening to the show so I could type the responses as I'm hearing them because lots of times I forget <laughs> later on. Just but start a thread and li- like live tweet the show. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I like but that. I would like to see that. Someday, someday maybe when I have free time to just do that. Yeah, I listen in the car. That would be de- deadly. You know, just like, hold on traffic. I got shh. 
<laughs> I got stuff to do. <laughs> it's even a lot of fun just to go on there and, and do my own, share my own off the shelf so that uh, I can share what I'm doing and see what other people are playing too. So if you're listening, you should come on to the Facebook group and uh, post what you've been playing lately. You know what I forgot to mention? I actually booted up a Reddit page for us, but I haven't done much with it. So maybe I shouldn't talk about that yet. Don't forget <laughs> I said anything. <laughs> Upvote. <laughs> Well, Ray, since you're here, uh, I will start with you. Any final thoughts? I was not ready for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I never neither, am, man. Neither is Robert every single episode. So so you are doing yeah, fine. I start, I start rambling, and then I cut out my front ramble, <laughs> and then I pretend that I had this thought from the beginning. That's usually how I go. That is the hidden secret. For, for my final thoughts, uh, perhaps I can shamelessly shill a little bit more. Uh, Absolutely. Forgot my dice listeners. Welcome to come into the Facebook group. And uh, if you post there, I will be happy to, for any of the books that I have them available, share a code with you so you can download one of my books for free and give it a listen and maybe uh, post your thoughts. I have some uh, very fun books, the Great Martian War books that are uh, based off of uh, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Uh, Legacy of Shadow, epic uh, sci-fi so space opera from Craig Gallant. Loved the, it. Loved it. That was good. Yeah, from, of the uh, D6 Generation podcast. I've got some uh, young adult fantasy and uh, post-apocalyptic books. Look me up on Audible, Ray Greenlee, my normal name. And if you see a book there that you like, then um, come to the FMD uh, Facebook group and post, and I will share a code with you so that you can download it for free and listen. Can't ask for much more there. No. And how about you, Robert? Any final thoughts? Uh, what Ray said, only more so. <laughs> that bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. That's all I got. What Ray said, but more so. That's my final thought. Fair enough. <laughs> well, with that shocker of a final thought. With that mind-bending ending, there's only one last thing to be said to both of you gentlemen. That is, be excellent to one another and party on. Party on, Robert and Jonathan. Party on, Ray. And to a lesser extent, Jonathan. Wow. (laughs) I'm coming to your state. Oh, God. I forgot about that. I should be nice to you. I don't know how I'm going to entertain you for one whole day. Like, I'm so suburban. You don't need to entertain me. I'll be happy to just sit there and chat with you in person. <laughs> That's true. Or bring one of the many games that you have scheduled to play together. I could bring hate, but they'd charge me another $25 for another check bag. No, you know, we're definitely going to my library, man. We can, we can pull something off the library shelf and try it. The music you heard in this podcast was intro by Elifiel. Additional music was provided by Brian Winkleman. Funding for the Forgot My Dice podcast was provided by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you 